The Angie's List you know and trust is now Angie, and we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews, but now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. From the halls of assembly, you'll hear a scream and shout. I love of Indiana, his manic and devout. Everything I do, we discuss in unique manner. We won't be satisfied until we hang another banner. Us two goofy guys go by names of Ward and Eric. And as you probably know by now, we're Hoosier Hysterics. Hoosier Hysterics. Hoosier Hysterics. Hello, Ward. Hello, Eric. Listen, I don't want to screw around. We got two guests today. They're both really cool with interesting stories and different perspectives that we've ever done before. And so I want to get to them as quickly as possible. So, Ward, we are powered by communitycars.com sponsor of the part of your hysterics communitycars.com illusion engines talk with Ward and Eric That is as straight as you've ever done the Powered By. It wouldn't have taken us a lot more time if you did it normally, mm-hmm. but but you just went serious and businesslike on that one. My Zoom call is up to three hours and 12 minutes, and I also have to edit this tonight, so I'm not here to fuck around. Let's go. <laughs> <laughs> well, just go buy your car. Stop being a jackass and buy your car community cars. That's all we're going to say about them. Look, here's the big news. The Hoosier Fantasy Experience Weekend is coming. It's Wait, coming, Ward. We are in that? the month. Yeah. Do you hear that? Yeah. It's the, it's the Hoosier Fantasy Experience Fan Fest knocking on your door. Autograph and pictures before the Fan Fest on Saturday, August 19th. Then the Fan Fest, which will include a scrimmage, a three-point contest, a dunk contest, interactive games where we bring fans down. Super fun. First chance to see the 2023-24 Indiana Hoosiers, including Khalil Ware, Mackenzie Mbako, all the rest of the players, newcomers like Gabe Cups, Ja'Kai Newton. Get to see Malik Renew. Get to see the transfers, Anthony Walker. Get to see um, Peyton Sparks. Get to see Trey Galloway, who Woody last week said has been the best player in the gym recently. And after the Fan Fest, another autograph and picture session. We want to get as many people, as many autographs and pictures as we can. Tickets range from $5 all the way up to, I think we have a couple tickets left in a special VIP package. Remember, all the money goes to NIL. That's what this is about. It's about connecting community to the fan, to the 
team, the team to the community, and raising money for NIL. There's a VIP package for $1,000, gets you half an hour head start on autograph session. It's very limited. There were only 10 tickets sold. So you could have be one of 10 people that has your pick of autographs before this thing ever kicks off. You get a special courtside seat. You get to rebound for the team during the warmups. I mean, you are part of it. And your contribution of $1,000 will not be wasted. It is a huge, huge impact on Indiana basketball. I'm Who's your have fantasy to, experience? I'm going to have to talk to Annie about it, but I think you just sold me in. I'm going to do it. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to get the VIP ticket. HoosierFantasyExperience.com. HoosierFantasyExperience.com. Go get your tickets to the Fan Fest. Last-minute tickets. I think there might be a slot or two available for the golf outing. Sign up now. We're going to be there, Ward, this month. You and I are back in Bloomington. What's better than that? Um, leaving Bloomington without injury. You know, I'm that's that's definitely a focus of mine. I will say this about going back there with now two years of positivity. Ever since Woody was hired, it's it's over two years now. Um, even going back to Peru this last time and talking to different Indiana fans, you know, a couple of people I don't know from my hometown, but who do listen to the the podcast and just the the mood of the listeners when we get to talk to them, uh, because, you know, it's it's our, all our moods are so predicated on the state of the program. And it just seems every time we go back, every time I go back with the family and I have those conversations bigger smiles, more positivity. And it's not just the NIL money that makes an impact from this weekend. Uh, it makes a huge impact. But it's also, what's it look like on social media? And we fill Assembly Hall with thousands and thousands and thousands of people in August to watch a scrimmage and some fun games and to get autographs. That is awesome. That is something no other school really can do in this way. And, um, you know, it's months ahead of Midnight Madness, and it really shows a lot of recruits, a lot of really good recruits who are currently recruiting just how invested this fan base is, not just with their dollars, but with their presence to be there and to, to support this team even, you know, when football's barely started. So let's get out there and show America how much we love our team. Let's get to these interviews. Okay. Here comes our guest. Here comes our guest. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, I can't stop grinning. Pretty soon that grin is probably going to turn into laughter. That's what this guy does. He makes people laugh. Millions of people laugh. And he's as big a IU fan as you could ever find. He's a Hoosier legend in his own right. And he's here with us today. It's thrilling. Eric, who is our guest? Hailing from the great city of Chicago, Illinois, where he did become a member of the second city in Chicago and studied with people like Amy Poehler. He was a writer and performer on Conan O'Brien from 1997 through 2015 or so. Is that about right? Yep, got that. You may know you you definitely know the words that he has written, but you also know his face, although it's usually covered in a lot of makeup. <laughs> he has played characters that range from Frankenstein, God, the Devil, Zeus, Dumbledore, Gandalf, a warden, Wikibear, Artie Kendall, the ghost crooner, the Reverend Otis K. Dribbles, Bulletproof Legs, Kitty McBagpipes. He has every kind of character you can imagine. He's appeared on the Conan show over those decades 
in a variety of different uh, characters. He is an Emmy-nominated writer. I can't even count the number of Emmy nominations, but it's got to be about 20, right? Do you know the number? I don't. I'm sorry, Eric. I don't actually know. No, it's know. okay, but I think it's about 20. <laughs> well, thanks for uh, for mentioning it. <laughs> and he, did, he is an Emmy Award winner. He has written for the MTV Movie Awards. He's written for the Emmy Awards. He then moved on after Conan to The Late Show with Stephen Colbert where he has become a huge part of that show. You may know him as Cartoon Donald Trump. That is part of his resume. Uh, God, the ghost of Abraham Lincoln. He has done and written over 2,000 episodes of television. He's appeared in 30 Rock, New Girl, Parks and Rec, Aqua Teen Hunger Force. He's been a voice in Hotel Transylvania and many others. He's won five Writers Guild Awards. Like I said, I think he's been nominated for an Emmy every year since 1998 or so. Ladies and gentlemen, this is one of the most talented writers and performers and comedy people in the world. And as Ward said, he is a giant IU fan, so we can claim him as our own. Ladies and gentlemen, it's our pleasure to welcome Brian Stack. Thank you guys so much. That's an incredibly generous introduction. And thank you for having me on. I've been a fan of the podcast for a long time. So as as you know. <laughs> well, it, it is funny. I want to, uh, by way of brief introduction because we don't do too many interviews with people that are not directly tied to to the basketball program as you know but this one obviously because of your career we wanted to do it but also how we met each other is a fun story because you're out of all that um those accolades that i just read in your accomplishments there is no doubt that the best accomplishment that you have under your uh banner is that your daughter is attending indiana university Yes, she is. She's going to be a senior this year. And I mean, uh, we, met, we met you guys uh, together. That was great. That's right. I, we were as, you remember, as you remember, I almost uh, <laughs> fell on my butt on the ice yes. right right before meeting you. And uh, you guys were so nice. I, I just introduced myself to you. Uh, you had no idea who I was, and I, 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 but I definitely knew who you guys were. And uh, yeah, you guys were so nice. So, th so thanks for saying hi to both of us. Of course. Oh. Uh, yeah, it was it was destiny, clearly. And of course, Brian, you've been so generous with your time as uh, as an adjunct instructor at Indiana University. You were so kind to speak with my class and even talk with students afterwards who are interested in getting into the field. Um, but, you know, I, I think you know how we do it on this show. I mean, we're a little more contemporary these days. It's not so much going back to uh, when did you first love uh, fall in love with the game of basketball? So I guess for you, it's when did you first fall in love with IU basketball? You know, I always knew that about the the great tradition and history of it growing up in Chicago because I would hear about it. But uh, my parents had gone to DePaul, so I was more like Chicago centric at the time when I was growing up. Um, and uh, I got to really kind of fall in love with IU, like probably my junior year of high school when um, they won the 81 championship. And uh, my friend, Kevin Barrett, his sister went to IU. We went for a visit and I fell totally in love with the campus like everybody does when they come for a visit. And Isaiah Thomas had actually played in my high school conference. He was a senior when I was a freshman and he was a legend around Chicago. So he, he kind of uh, was sort of my introduction to IU uh, in a more significant way and when um but coming to visit it was the same with my daughter like when i brought her for a visit 
I was thinking this will be one of the schools she looks at and I hope she likes it and maybe she'll go. And that was the only place she wanted to look at after she went. She was like, I don't, I was like feeling like kind of a bad dad, like not take her to more schools, but she goes, no, this is where I want to go. And I was like, oh, she's got good taste. <laughs> so, that was, that was really, uh, saying that's, yeah, she's going to be a senior. It's crazy. So what years were you in Bloomington? I was there from 82 to 86. So I just missed both oh, championships. That's <laughs> brutal. brutal. But they did win the big 10 my freshman year. And that's so, it, I just love seeing the 83 big 10 banner up there. Cause yes. uh, that was Ted Kitchell and Randy Whitman. And that was, those were, were great games to go to. And uh, we saw, my sophomore year, we beat North Carolina when Jordan was on the team. And that was the one time I went to show Alter Fountain, even though we weren't even going to the final four. It was it was so exciting. We we're all like just starving for glory and <laughs> going out to the fountain. I want to kind of hit parallel paths here because, you know, Brian, we travel in even though we're on different coasts, we have traveled in similar circles in our careers around the late night comedy writing world. And obviously, I mean. I, this is not under uh, overstating it when I say that Brian is a legend in the late night comedy game. Oh, you um, kind of thank you, sir. Usually that starts pretty early as far as being a fan and a student of that genre. I know it did for me sneaking out of my bedroom to hide behind the couch and watching the Johnny Carson tonight show uh, before my mom would go to bed. I could get in the monologue and usually some of, of the next segment, but uh, what, what was it for you that, that, convinced you comedy was the way to go what what did you fall in love with as a kid you know growing up I was always a huge comedy fan it never occurred to me that I could do it myself really <laughs> until uh later on but I I loved SCTV and early SNL and Monty Python and Peter Sellers and I was just obsessed with all that stuff and Carol Burnett you know when I was real little my fa whole family watched Carol Burnett and we loved the sketches and Tim Conway and all them um and uh so I was a huge fan, but when I got to IU actually was when I discovered the possibility of doing some comedy myself, even though I didn't have the guts to try it at first. My friend Mick Napier, who lived on my dorm floor, who later became a big director at Second City, hugely influential, directed people like Tina Fey and Stephen Colbert and all these people later on. But he lived on my dorm floor in Teeter and he had an improv group at IU that I used to go see and I thought it looked so fun and I was like, oh, I wish I had the guts to try it, but he told me about Improv Olympic in Chicago and I ended up taking classes there and finally giving it a try the summer after graduation. But I wish I'd tried it sooner. Like I know Ward did it in college, which is with uh, Full Frontal, right? That's correct. Yes, yes. That's awesome. I, I'm so glad there's so many groups there now. There, it was kind of unusual when I was there for Mick to have a group. There weren't a lot of improv groups in college campuses, so it was uh, a lot more kind of a novel idea at the time. Well, in Chicago, I mean, you know, it's funny, like you read the book Outliers or or things like that, that do deep dives into how people, you know, became what they become. Like Bill Gates, it's it's a good coincidence for Bill Gates that he grew up in an area that his I think his mom worked at a college that had the one of the first computers. Well, if he didn't grow up there, who knows? You grew up in, you know, arguably the, the comedy mecca of the country in, in Chicago with so many good groups and obviously sketch comedy and things like Second City and, and UCB and all those things that, that are available in Chicago. Um, how did you fall into Second City? Well, I like you said, I was lucky enough to be from Chicago. I don't know if I would have had the guts like a lot of my friends did to move to Chicago to do it. Like, I don't know if I would have moved to an entirely new city 
I would, I don't know if I would have had the confidence, but when I finished up, I started doing improv when I was in grad school, uh, up in Wisconsin. And I was going there at, at this little place called the arc theater. And, uh, the late great Chris Farley was actually in my first group there. But wow. when I got back to Chicago, right after grad school, I started taking improv Olympic classes uh, again and some classes at Second City. And I started just getting involved with groups just for fun while I was working at an ad agency as my day job. And I just did it purely on an amateur basis for a few years, just at night and on weekends at Improv Olympic, which is now called IO Chicago and classes at Second City and, and in other groups. And then um, I got hired at Second City in late 92 and ended up working there. We toured the country for a couple of years. And then I was in the resident company for a couple of years where you develop shows with the cast. And one of the highlights of my touring days was doing a show at IU in the IU Auditorium in 94. That is one of my favorite memories. Yes. Uh, my old roommates from, from IU came and it was, I had seen shows there, like I saw REM there and stuff. And it was, I couldn't believe I was getting to do a show in that room. And it, I, I've always loved that auditorium. And uh, so that was probably the highlight of all my two years of touring, we would go all around the country in a little crappy van and eat terrible food. And it's know. so, it's so funny, yeah. Brian, though, that you talk about that, um, that auditorium and how special it was. And you saw REM there when I was back with Ward a few years ago and Ward had to, I think you had to leave early Ward. And I was there for one more night. And I'm like, what am I going to do tonight by myself in Indiana? It's one thing when Ward and I are smoking cigars, walking around Kirkwood, when it's just one of us, it's weird. <laughs> it's not a good look. It's Very not creepy. a good look. So I was like, what am I going to do? And I looked up and at the auditorium, Bob Dylan was playing. So <laughs> I remember I, you posting about that. Yeah, I bought a couple <laughs> tickets to Bob Dylan, gave one away to somebody, some like fan of the podcast who joined me. And I got to see Bob Dylan at the IU Auditorium. Wow. The place is so special. Um, I also saw Bill Cosby at the IU Auditorium. He's the first comedian. He played at my high school. This was before the Cosby show. So he was big, but not huge. Uh, and uh, yeah, I saw him live once too when I was a teenager. So I yeah. <laughs> I relate. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> to, now to circle back to your formative days of comedy in Chicago, I think we're all so familiar on this podcast with Bobby Knight as as this legendary influential figure in, in college basketball. But at Improv Olympic, correct me if I'm wrong, but two of the most influential teachers of the game would have been there at that time. Were Del Close and Sharna Halperns both there and teaching while you were there? They were, yeah. Del, uh, they, Del was sort of the artistic kind of guru, uh, one of the most brilliant madmen you could ever meet, like just a, a true original brilliant mind but no mind for business or anything like that. So Sharna <laughs> would kind of run the organization. So they made a really good team. But Dell Dell's a true visionary guru, uh, had a huge impact on so many people. Amy Poehler once said, Dell's the most famous man in comedy that nobody knows because mm -hmm. he influenced so many people. John Belushi called him the biggest influence he ever had. But most uh, regular people don't know who Dell is, but I'm glad you do. Well, the the story that always sticks with me was that Dell hadn't come by the theater for a few days, and people were worried about him. So they sent a couple people to his his apartment, and and they kind of had to like shove the door open, and you know they're thinking the worst. <laughs> and once they opened the door, 
there's just ropes strung from every corner <laughs> of the apartment to the other, just in every direction. And they see Dell up in the ropes. And they go, <laughs> Dell, what are you doing? And he goes, I'm Spider Man. <laughs> yeah, there's a million Dell stories. He is he was a true, truly one of a kind and just uh kind of a folk folk hero, you know, folk character. <laughs> uh as your uh, comedy life started taking shape, as you left Chicago and you came to Indiana, and then and then obviously afterwards, did you ever look at Bobby Knight the way that I think some of us who truly truly love him as we know that he's got the fiery personality and he's great with the f bomb and all that, but I always thought the guy was hysterical. I just thought he was one of the funniest guys in the world. I always thought he had a great sense of humor too. And uh, oddly enough, just a quick side. Side note, I was actually at the game where he threw the chair. Uh, I was, uh, and it was the best seat I ever had for an IU game. It was my junior year, I think. Was it that seat? Was it that seat? Did you have it only for part of the game? (laughs) That would have been great. I would have been honored to have him just literally just pull it out from under me. But um, I remember it being a really ugly game. It was against Purdue, and it was just, uh, the whole game had an ugly feel to it. And I remember thinking that, the chair throw was going to make the news, the local news, but I didn't think people would be talking about it 38 years later. Right. <laughs> the national joke. That's amazing. But it was, a, it was a something to see, I'll tell you. But yeah, well, I always thought he had a really good sense of humor. I think just a very complicated, complex guy, brilliant, you know, plenty of flaws, plenty of genius, you know, just a, an look, interesting package. Brian, you've been around uh, and in our business, I think we see a lot of these kinds of people like, the best people at what we do or the business that we're in, many of them are not very well adjusted. I mean, there is something, there is something else going on that, and you can't have one without the other, which is the sad part, you know? I mean, look, I know you were, you were close to Chris Farley and something that drove, and I I don't, don't pretend to know Chris. I clearly was a giant fan and read a lot about him and listened to a lot of interviews with friends of his, but that thing that made Chris great was also the thing that that probably made him a little, you know, unstable too. And and I think it's the same thing with Bobby Knight. The thing that made him great was also the thing that made him complicated. And and it's hard to have one without the other in so many of these great icons of whatever business they're in. Absolutely, couldn't agree more. That that's something that you you often find where yeah they some of the most brilliant people have their their demons they're struggling with. Absolutely. When you were let because there's there's so much to get into post Bloomington, but just to linger there for a moment longer. Why is it such a special place to you with with the experience you had there and you hadn't found your footing yet? You in terms of you, you didn't know exactly where your life was going and how spectacular it would be, along with great basketball. What was what was I IU like for you in the mid 80s? Well, it was it was really a, a great time to be there. I, I thought for such a big school, it always had kind of a a small school feel in a way like it never, never felt huge or impersonal. And I had some great roommates there. You know, there's Pat Decker, Greg Ewing, Bart Brown, Dan Aaron, all those guys that I lived with and uh, lived near in those apartments near the the stadium after we moved out of Teeter. And they were great. And um, it was so cool, too, to just see how like my freshman year was the the year the soccer team won its first national championship with Greg Thompson's amazing kick. And, and then, like I said, beating North Carolina and I have some great memories of that. And then just little things like doing 
I did a radio show at the WIUS, which which it was called at the time. I probably had like three listeners tops on any given show. <laughs> three loyal I don't think... listeners, though. Loyal. Oh, I'm telling you, it was in a house at the time, an old brick house, and it was all just literally vinyl records. I sound like I'm 100 years old, but it was, uh, but I, I learned a lot about music. WIUS was a huge, I did cartoons for the IDS too, which was really fun. Oh, um, wow. Just, it, not a comic strip, but I would illustrate articles, like there'd be an article about t-shirts being popular, and I would draw like a goofy guy with some t-shirts on or something, or I remember when they were making Hoosiers, I did a drawing for... A, a, just a, a basketball player in the fifties, just for that article or, you know, things like that. So even I wish I'd been more involved with the IDS and the radio station, but those were great experiences too. And just getting turned on to weird music. Like I remember a weird guy walking in with a Mohawk one night at like midnight just going, you got any butthole surfers? <laughs> and, I was like, <laughs> and I was like, yeah, it was actually a guy walking into the station to request that I play a song for him while he sat there. And I was like, butthole surfers. That was my first that I heard of them. And I, uh, I found a song called the Shah sleeps in Lee Harvey's grave for the guy. And um, it, I don't think I've ever fully recovered from hearing that song. <laughs> but now, uh, it was just a great time to be there you know it that still is i'm sure did you well, I, i'm trying to think if the timing matches up but i think it does did you become a letterman guy while at indiana what was letterman and what he was doing in late night television obviously i know the influence he had on conan um but was, was that something that became a big deal for you i know i'm a few years behind you but that was a game changer for me was what letterman was doing Absolutely. He was a huge hero of mine. And Mick, again, Mick Napier, you know, who lived on my floor, he's the one that got me really into watching that on a regular basis. And he loved Letterman. And he loved that it. it was kind of an anti-talk show. It was sort of like deconstructing taking, it. Yeah. Taking all the seriousness out of show business and playing with it. And Chris Elliott became a huge hero of mine. And I was lucky enough to meet him uh, in LA years later. And he was just as nice as I hoped he would be, you know, when you meet your heroes like that, but he had a huge impact on me, how much fun he would have doing his characters and the guy under the stairs and the mm -hmm. paranoid guy who thought everyone was against him. <laughs> and he would come out as Marlon Brando and, and, uh, yeah, Letterman was huge. And, uh, Meryl Marco, who is one of the head writers there, uh, yeah. got to know her too. And she kind of downplays it, but I, I, I'm always just gushingly telling her how much her stuff meant to me and um she you know created stupid petricks and all these wonderful bits that helped shape my dna you know at the time did, did you ever get to know um either madeline smithberg or mary Connolly? i got i met madeline a little bit because my wife miriam madeline actually uh was one of the people that hired my wife miriam uh on the a, daily show yeah, yeah she was there for uh a year or two before my before Colette was born, uh, just before, and uh, that was, I, I don't know if Madeline would remember me, but I met her briefly back then when Miriam was working with her, and I, I don't think I met Mary Connolly. I uh, when I got to work with, sorry for the people that don't love the inside baseball here, but Mary <laughs> Connolly and uh, Madeline Smithberg were both writers or producers on Letterman Show, and then have both gone on to do other things. Madeline went on to create the daily show first with with Kilborn and then and then the transition to John and Mary Connolly went on to become a big producer at Mad About You and then the Ellen show oh, uh Ellen's show so I got to work with both of them on those shows and it was like 
you know, if you talk to anybody who was on Letterman back in the day and that old, the late night Letterman show, it's like comedy royalty. And I, I just loved picking their brains about those days. And like you said, stupid pet tricks, or I remember mm. the guests they would have on Kmar, the, the magician who would just throw knives and barely speak English and <laughs> just killed me. I mean, just absolutely killed me. I can't imagine any other shows having people like Harvey Picar on as guests or yes. just Rich. crazy guys like brother Theodore. And, you know, it was just, it was such a wonderful show. Carson, I always admired Carson and I thought he was great at what he did, but Letterman felt like it was more like, I was like, Oh, this is, this is for me. Like I yes. found FTTV. I was like, Carson felt like it was for everyone, you know, and Letterman felt like you'd found this little, bag of gold you know like when i discovered sctv it was the same way i felt like you almost felt like you stumbled on it in the dark and just like no one else knows about this thing yeah exactly and i totally agree i mean i'm monkey cam you remember the monkey cam uh, i mean i just killed me and it, but like you said because it was stuff that it felt like that's what i would create with my friends I would say, let's go put a camera on a monkey. Like, it was, right. now, granted, <laughs> I would never come up with the idea and he was always doing it better. But also back in those days, it was when Dave was really invested. And when Dave would go do field pieces or do drive through and stuff like that, there was just nobody better. He just owned every space that he was in. I, I loved it in, in actually a way that I always thought was similar to Carson on stage. Like it was Carson's show. Right. You were coming onto his stage. He was never right. going, you know, I think a lot of the hosts now, although I think Colbert is very, I think Colbert is like a throwback, but you know, the Jimmy Fallon and even, even James that I worked with, they fawn over the guest so much. They're such fans of the guest. That's not what Carson was. No, and Letterman. I always loved that or Letterman. And I, I yeah. just loved that idea that no, 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 this is my show. You're coming to me. Yeah, I think Carson had a wonderful way of uh, setting people up too, and not like he was willing to kind of take a step back. And I think all the the best hosts know when to kind of step back and uh, let the guests shine, you know. And uh, totally, I think that uh, yeah, that's always a quality I admired in in him, and I think everyone else did too. So as you matriculate back to Chicago, well, it's Wisconsin first. And and you 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 team up with Chris Farley there, but you you cross paths with a lot of other people who would go on to have uh, incredible careers in Chicago. And I was hoping you could just kind of take us through some of the highlights of some of the folks you you started uh, your career with there, and obviously later you would cross paths with them as well. Because uh, when you told the class this stuff, I was just like, I can't I can't believe all of you were coming out of there at the same time. It was, it was looking back, I realized how lucky I was to just be around these people just as like the local entertainment. Like I, I got so much inspiration from just watching these people in basements and little rooms and yeah, people like Chris and, uh, there was, you know, Steve Carell and Steve Colbert and Amy Sedaris and Tina Fey and Neil Flynn, you know, who played the janitor on scrubs and everything. And, uh, my wife Miriam was in, in groups with me and we were in there with Rachel Dratch and there were people like Amy Poehler and Jane Lynch was there and Mike Myers was there a little before we were and it and then just the people just coming after us were amazing like all all the people that later formed Upright Citizens Brigade like Amy Poehler and Matt Walsh and who was on Veep and everything they were our 
friends in Chicago and they went to New York a year before I got there. And so when I got to New York in 97, it was so cool that they had UCB up and running already and were doing shows. So on Sunday nights, we'd go to the show called Ask Cat and it was like a Chicago reunion every week. And it was just such, such fun times just doing those shows and Steven would do it and Tina and all these, and Adam McKay, you know, one of the funniest people I've ever met who, um, you know, the later became such a wonderful writer director like Anchorman and everything. He was he was in our touring company and just always had such amazing ideas and riding around in a van with with Adam was was just and just and, I mean, fits. and responsible for succession. Yeah, I mean, it's like crazy. I mean, you know what he's done in the uh, wasn't the big short his as yeah. well. Yeah, he actually won an Oscar for the adapted screenplay for that, which is so crazy. And but he's such a wonderful guy, and like uh, it couldn't happen to a nicer guy. And uh, but he was always just same with Tina, like Tina Fey, like they would have these even in those days, they were always writing stuff and always working on stuff and always. So they were always their work ethic was as impressive as their brilliance. You know, they were just amazing talents, but they also just busted their butts writing stuff all the time. I, I just feel like that time in Chicago and even predating it a little bit there where you would be like, um, you know, Bill Murray and a lot of those guys who were coming up there uh, ahead of time. I'm sorry. I just got some food delivered, but I'm going to let it get cold. <laughs> um, that it was like like the lost generation in Paris in the 20s or or like the beatniks, whether it be in, in New York or San Francisco. It's just such a special time and place. And those names you just mentioned, you were riding around in vans and doing comedy in basements are, are the biggest names in comedy ever since. And not only still continue to be, but that influence is just going to go on uh, uh, for, for decades to come. Um, did you have any idea that's what was going on? Did you know you were in the middle of something special or were you just too in it to realize where it was going? You know, it was so crazy because we all, like I, I knew that a lot of these people, like I, I remember before I got before I got hired at Second City, I saw Steve Carell in a 7-Eleven parking lot with his bicycle and I was already such a huge fan of his that I came out of the dark like a kind of a, like a stalker. And I just said, hey man, and I think he got startled for a second. And, uh, but I was just telling him, I just want to say, I think you're really great. And I just love your work. And he was super nice about it and everything. And he, he still is just one of the nicest guys in the world. But um, I I knew that I was around people who I thought were amazing and we all thought were amazing. But you also know that there's a lot of luck and weirdness in show business. And I didn't pretend to understand how show business worked. And I didn't think that there was, I knew if there was any justice that some of these people were going to be very successful because I knew they were Watching someone like Amy Sedaris on stage with Carell and Colbert, you knew they were special. Yeah, I, everyone in Madison like knew Farley was special, even when it was, he was working in for doing a show for three people. It was very glaringly obvious, you know, and it was glaringly obvious to regular people that would come to the show. They would just react to him the way everyone reacted later. So, um, but I didn't pretend to to think I I understood like what made people successful or how show business works. So I hoped that it, all these things would happen for for some of them, and and obviously for some of them it did. And uh, but I really had no idea. I always thought growing up, I always thought showbiz people came from outer space or something. You know, I didn't <laughs> think you could ever just they could came out of basements in Chicago. You know. <laughs> Uh, well, let's talk uh, a little bit more about Indiana, because you did mention that 1984 North Carolina game. North Carolina ranked number one in the country. Michael Jordan, 
uh, finishing up his back-to-back player of the year seasons. He's going to go on to become pretty good in the NBA. And um, Indiana, not really given much of a chance in that game. Of course, a lot's been made about Dan Dockich guarding uh, Michael Jordan in that game. But it was also the beginning of the Steve Alford uh, era of Indiana, which of course culminated in a national title. And Steve Alford was a was a, a legend before he ever got to Indiana. He was the hometown kid from the state. I want to know about that game specifically, but I also want to know about Steve Alford and being there when Steve's career started. What do you remember just about kind of the aura of Steve Alford? He was such a god around campus. Like he was, uh, and he looked so good. He looked like kind of like a, a, a movie star, you know, walking around and, and he had that aura about him. Um, and I remember, uh, you probably remember the the free throw routine he would do. It was socks, shorts, one, one two, two, three. Yeah, and the whole crowd, I remember we would all just chant that. And that was always really exciting. And he, I think he had like 96% free throw shooting, something <laughs> like that. It was insane. But um, he was just always just looked perfect. His hair was perfect. And I love the the combination of personalities on those teams and on the later teams, you know, like, when they brought Keith Smart in, you know, he was so different and they all were bringing something to the, to the mix that was amazing. But um, no, I just remember him being kind of a teen idol almost around campus. I remember seeing Uwe Blop, my, I think it was my freshman yes. year. And I'd never seen a guy that tall in person. And uh, it kind of blew my mind. Plus he was wearing like a polo shirt and jeans. So it's especially <laughs> weird. <laughs> the casually dressed, you know, tree uh, standing there. And uh yeah, so that was that was really surreal just seeing him on a street corner, you know, on Jordan Avenue. Did you have did you have a favorite player that that you'd root the hardest for while you were there? I think like my the ones I remember rooting for first were like Randy Whitman and Ted Kitchell because they were they would just shoot the lights out and they just seemed like such good guys. They didn't seem like they ever called attention to themselves. They just played great. And uh, later, of course, you know. I just was a huge fan of Alford's and, um, and then I, I remember just sitting in my little, I wish I could have been back on campus when Keith Smart hit that shot, but, um, he'll always be, you know, such a hero to me for, for that shot and, and other, how he played in general, but I screamed so loud. I was in my apartment by myself, which is so sad. (laughs) My little grad school apartment. And I was like, I should be with my friends back in, in IU. And uh, I screamed so loud that my neighbor actually complained. And I'm not the type to make a lot of noise, but he comes <laughs> in and he's like, what the hell is going on? And <laughs> like, I had no regrets, you know, uh, but it was the loudest to this day. The loudest I've ever screamed was when Keith Smart hit that shot for sure. So walk us through the North Carolina game. Where were you? Where did you watch it? Uh, what do you remember? Obviously, you said show Walter Fountain followed, but but give us what you remember of just watching that game. We watched it in the lounge in Teeter in the, um, the you know, the the, the crappy you know, lounge with the couches with all kinds of beer stains on them and stuff. And um, so it was really fun to just watch it with everybody in the dorm. And uh, it was so exciting just to go out and and actually storm the, the fountain and everything, even though I can't even imagine what it was like for the national championships. But uh, that was our little taste of that, which was it was fantastic. Have you seen... Um on the big 10 network, that documentary done about the 1985 Hoosiers taking the big trip where Knight took them on that international trip. And that's like your contemporaries, right? You were there during that time. 
Um, have you been able to watch that stuff? Yeah, I love that. I loved it. And I love the uh, the Big Ten Elite one they did on 87 team yes. and 81 team. And I love also going back and watching like the 70s, like they show the classic. They just recently showed the 76 championship game, yep. which is amazing. But um, yeah, I loved seeing and I love seeing how much the other players love Daryl Thomas because we all love Daryl Thomas because he was just a hardworking. He always had that big smile on his face. You know, even during games, it kind of lit up the assembly hall. You could just see his smile from like from the crappy seats. And uh, yeah. he just always struck me as a guy. I, I never met any of those guys, but you felt like you you grew to know and love them from afar, you know, and totally. they, they seem like and that that was such a such a, a fun documentary to watch because I didn't really know about that trip, you know. Right. Yeah. Me neither. Like, I mean, I like to think that we know a lot about Indiana basketball and that was like a revelation that every, and the people that went on the trip with him, like the, you know, the older coaches, who was it? Um, um, yeah. was it Henry B, Iba? Iba. Yeah. Iba yeah. was there. Did you think Pete Newell with him? Yeah. Did I think Pete it was Newell those two. Oh yeah. Like, just these like legendary people. The night's like, yeah, come on, let's go. Let's all go together. We'll go. We'll figure out a time to go fishing. Well, well, and then Joe Hillman telling the story about being like abducted by the authorities oh, because they thought so he was like a, a terrorist or something. I mean, it was <laughs> insane. Just I, I love that stuff. I love it. I do, too. I can't get enough of those old stories. Like I watched the thing on George Talaferro and his yeah. whole story. It's just I, I can never get enough of that stuff. So, and Brian, have you obviously you were a big fan when you were there. Obviously, Ward and I were big fans when we were there. But I do feel like my fandom has grown in direct opposite proportion to how closely I was at Bloomington. Meaning when I was one year out of Bloomington, my fandom was okay. When I was 10 years out of Bloomington, I was 10 times more of a fan. And now I'm even more of a fan. Like I just feel like it grows and grows the further that the memory becomes uh, of me being at Indiana. Yeah. I feel the same way. Like I, I think there was, there were, Quite a few years there where I was I was following the teams, but I had slipped out of the knowing everything that was going on. And uh, just I got distracted by everything that was going on with when we were moving from like, to New York to L.A. and sure. like bouncing around. But I always tried to follow what was going on from afar. But in I would say in the last eight years or so, I got completely sucked back in and and listening to podcasts like yours or listening to Galen Clavio and people like that, you know, just, it just sucks me completely back in. And it, it, I can't get enough of that stuff, but just hearing all the, uh, the details now, I'm, I'm just following everything a lot more closely again. Well, and, and to be fair, nobody could follow it this closely before the digital age has allowed these formats to spring up where this, this documentary could come to life or if they're so kind as to join us, we can hear these legends talk for hours on end instead of little sound bites or read about them maybe in an interview or a book. So I really do think the advent of, of podcasts and the internet has allowed us all to go way further down the rabbit hole than we ever could before. Oh, absolutely. And I, your podcast to thank so much for like, like the interviews with like people like Steve Downing and Steve Green and like the, these guys, like, the you know that that played years ago or Kent Benson the, these people you know it's just amazing to hear their stories and uh, and they're just so entertaining and interesting and um, yeah so I agree I think the podcast world has opened up a whole universe of facts and trivia and experiences that we're I was completely cut off from before. 
Ken, Ken Benson is on our Mount Rushmore of most awkward moments because <laughs> thank you very Ward, much. Ward, thank you very much. Ward I inadvertently that. insulted him. <laughs> I didn't. I didn't insult him. I, I merely said inadvertently. Inadvertently. It, it, I, I I still don't know if I'd qualified as an insult. I just I should have realized that there was not going to be any humor to be in, to be found in getting punched by Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. Well, <laughs> yes, which which saying it out loud just seems inherently funny. I mean, it does. <laughs> right. it does. That's what I thought. Turns out I was wrong. Yeah, that was a good one. That's definitely on our Mount Rushmore. What was the one? <laughs> one happened recently. Well, well, yeah, on the D. Yeah, D, we don't need to get one. into on the D again. That was oh, a big we one. Drag that then through I had, the mud. I yeah. had the one with um with Colin Hartman about Stanford Robinson, where I made fun of Stanford not knowing which hand to shoot with, and changing hands like after a sophomore year, deciding no, nah, I'm I'm actually a righty now, which I thought was something usually discovered by the time you're five years old. But uh, then we found out that it was because he was paying honor to a deceased teammate in high school. So I stepped in that one. I stepped in that oh, one. Good. That's a good oh, one. Oh man, I feel feel for you on that one. Like who would know? Like who I would know. know. Who would know? <laughs> Can they put yeah. it on a Wikipedia page just to help me out? Something. Oh, yeah. Oh man. <laughs> Turns out Stanford Robinson's Wikipedia page isn't so up to date. <laughs> I cringe about things I said years ago all the time. I'm just like, oh, oh my god! <laughs> I know, right? I'm just, I'm just trying to go to sleep. Why is my brain thinking of this right now? <laughs> I know. Uh, Brian, well, go ahead, Ward. Well, I, you know, I, was, I think you know we you we've got to we got to jump to a couple coasts here with you. If if you can, you, you'd mention getting out to New York. What took you there, and and how did the ball really get? rolling for you like you know you can only you can only be in chicago for so long you got to get to new york or la to really make it happen how did it happen for you well it was weird like with the conan one happened in a very strange way i was uh working at second city and one of um some of the guys i knew from chicago that were working at conan um recommended me to send in a packet to fill in for a writer who had broken his leg really badly these days you could probably do this remotely, but he couldn't come into work. And they were like, why don't you, we'll let Brian send in some ideas. And luckily they liked it enough to bring me out for a 13 week cycle to fill in for when Tommy was out. And then luckily they liked the stuff I was doing and figured out a way to hang on to me as an extra writer, which I'll always be so grateful for. Um, it helped that I was making minimum writers go minimum, which was, you know, it was like an extra, you know, <laughs> bagel order or whatever for the day. But, um, <laughs> It was, uh, it was, and I ended up going from third, it was supposed to be 13 weeks and it ended up being 18 years with Conan, which is crazy. So I was there for 12 years at late night with Conan O'Brien in, in Rockefeller Center. And then when he took over the Tonight Show, we moved to LA in 2009. And that was, as you know, very short lived. But uh, then we were at the, we had a TBS show on the Warner Brothers lot um, there in Burbank. And that was always a treat walking around the lot, being a film nerd, you know, just seeing like, oh, that's where they, filmed the cool hand Luke breaking the parking meters. And, you know, I was just like, and Brian, that's Hall. where we just missed each other because I was doing the Lopez show. Oh, so wow, I was doing right Lopez there. right when, when Conan came in. So I did the first year plus of Lopez and then, and then moved on to, to do some other stuff. But, well, and, and now I'm, I'm walking around Warner brothers and literally around it on strike which isn't quite as magical as as being in the studio working but you could still see the water tower i know we're on strike i'm doing my 
our picketing here and I, I see the photos of all our friends in LA and uh, I know I would have been out there with you. Um, but You're we're, on yeah, double we're strike. marching around here. Yeah, you both are on double strike. No, I'm yeah. not WGA. Oh, you're not WGA. Okay, Brian's no. Brian's both. Yeah, yeah. It, I gotta say, you know, as much of a drag as it is, seeing the the solidarity between the actors and the writers has been amazing, and and the Teamsters have been like unbelievably supportive, and like I think everybody kind of knows the the fight is, you know, it's a lot of people have are sharing different aspects of the fight and stuff, but yeah. um, yeah, oh, so I'm, I'm out there. So, Brian, you're a guy from Chicago, a lot of pride, a lot of civic pride in Chicago. I know it's Great a very town. proud city. Great town. Um, the people take their comedy very seriously, too, that come from Chicago. But you get to go to New York and you're working at 30 Rock, which is, of course, the home of just, you know, the, the best of all time in Saturday Night Live and obviously the old Letterman show and just so much history. How cool was it? I, I've done two pilots at 30 Rock, and it was the greatest experience of my work life. I just loved walking through those turnstiles and up those elevators and past the lines of people at, for various talk shows, seeing Tom Brokaw in an elevator, things like that. What was it like to be at 30 Rock? You're a young guy and going to work on Conan every day. What, what was that experience like? It was such a privilege to work in that building for for twelve years, and to this day, I still cut through it, like on my way to to work, uh, like from the train to get over to the Ed Sullivan Theater, and I, which is also a wonderful historic yes. place to work, you know, where Stephen show, and uh, it's such a treat to work there too. But um, there, yeah, Rockefeller Center has that with that Art Deco design and everything, which I'm always a sucker for too. And just thinking about all the history and all the the stuff that's happened there going back, you know, to the thirties, you know, it's just, it's crazy to think about. And, um, I never really got over that, that feeling of, I never got jaded to the point where I, I stopped feeling lucky to work there. I awesome. just was in Chicago with my family. We were flying back to Indiana. We said, let's go through Chicago. The kids have never really done Chicago at all. Let's do that. And we, I think we were pretty close to like Ed DeBevix or something and noticed that the NBC building in Chicago basically looks like it's an imitation yeah. of Rockefeller Center. Was that by design? Do you, did either of you know why that came to pass? I actually don't. That's a good question. Yeah, it was uh, it was built as it was the NBC building. They built it when when they set up shop in, in Chicago and they built it as a mini 30 rock because we took it like a double take. We were like, what? I know. Yeah. My my good friend was um, uh, the executive producer of a court show that was done there for 20 years. And it was so cool to be to be there because <laughs> yeah. it did feel like they just took it, shrunk it a little bit and brought yeah. it to Chicago. Oh, you know, that never even occurred to me. But of course, that that's what they did. Yeah, yeah. that. Yeah, um, that's great. All place. right, let's but go back we, to Indiana. Oh, oh, sorry. Go ahead. Oh, well, I was just going to say uh, I got to uh, go as like a sophomore in high school. So this was probably like 94, 95 and for the drama club. And we we went to New York for spring break and we went and saw, you know, these different musicals and stuff. And then we got to go see a taping of Conan. And, oh, you know. Wow. You get in there and you don't realize how small that space is, how yeah. big that guy is, and and really like his comedy just working the crowd. You're like, oh, this guy is just funny 
all the time. But as somebody who grew up with Letterman, my dad was always watching it. So I was too. And then, and then as Conan comes along and obviously he, he'd been established by the time you got there, but in his own way, in his own generation, now he's doing something even weirder and further out there than Dave. And, and, and was that again something you were all really cognizant of? Like we're here to get weird and push the envelope. Was that was that um I, I don't know, was that just who you all were and who he was? Or was was there a real feeling of like we want to push comedy forward with what we're doing here? You know, it's funny when uh I think there was a conscious effort in the few years before I got there, like I got there in ninety-seven and the, the late show, late night with Conan started in ninety-three. And I think there was a conscious effort when Robert Smigel was head writer and with a lot of the early writers to do something as different from Dave as possible, even though they loved Letterman's show. I call him Dave. That's ridiculous. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> um, and me and Dave, my buddy. Uh, but um, they, uh, but they, they would, um, they were consciously trying to do their own thing. And I think one of the nicest compliments they heard was, I think, from George Meyer, who legendary Simpsons and Letterman writer, who said wow, you guys really did it. You did something new. You did something different from what we were doing. And that meant a lot to them because they they didn't want to be imitating the show, even though they loved it. Um, so when I got in, there was a lot more stability in like 97 because Conan already kind of had a long-term contract. In the early days, I think at one point they were like, we don't know if we're canceled right. on Friday and on Monday they'd find out, no, you can keep doing it for two weeks. you know. And it was like, <laughs> But by the time I got in there, there was a lot more stability and a lot. Um, and there was we were always encouraged to to try to write stuff we thought was funny. And I think that that's uh, one of the things I always loved about a lot of my favorite shows was you got the sense that the people doing it were trying to make themselves laugh and hoping the audience would join in with them. And um, that show always had that feel to it where we were kind of encouraged to to try whatever we wanted and. And sometimes we completely fall on our face, but it was always fun to uh, throw it up against the wall and see <laughs> see what works. Uh, and we we got to experiment a lot, which was very fun. It often felt like we we're in an attic and no one was watching. The adults weren't paying attention. You know, um, I think we weren't very high profile. It felt like sometimes I would forget people were watching the show. And when someone would mention a bit, they saw I was kind of shocked. I'm like, oh, you actually saw that went out there. Yeah, that it. Sometimes I would forget that it was actually being broadcast. <laughs> a, a, a an old comedy writer gave me a, a. He didn't give me the piece of advice, but he was giving it to a host that we were working with. Uh, this is early in my career, and the host was worried about like when that joke doesn't work. He's like the the host was really concerned about. I'm not sure if that bit's going to work. And this writer who had been around for a while goes, "Just put your shoulder into it." Yeah, but if if it what if it doesn't work? Lean harder. Like he was like, it doesn't matter whether it works or doesn't work in late night television, especially in daily television. You just got to own it. You can't pretend it didn't happen. You just got to own that it didn't work. Carson had a great way of owning flops that, that, you know, just sat there and he would use it. And you know what? That's really what Ward and I have built our podcast on. (laughs) Just leaning hard into things that don't work. Just lean right way hard into it. I think the audience gets such a kick out of that too. When you enjoy when things don't work, like when we when things would go really off the rails at Conan or at Steven's show, because they're they're both brilliant improvisers. You know they they love to roll with the stuff that goes wrong, and yes. a lot of times that's 
that's the audience's favorite stuff. Like a lot of the things we did, just, just something would go completely, completely way off the rails. And that would often be the most fun, fun stuff. Totally, totally agree. I remember when we did um, Daryl. Well, Daryl, <laughs> let's Daryl's asleep, so that's good. But when I was doing the um, Arsenio Hall reboot, when I was doing that reboot show, and Arsenio had not been doing stand-up for a long time, so he was really out of practice, and a lot went wrong, a lot. <laughs> but we we changed directions about a month in because the show just wasn't working, and it wasn't fun for anybody. We weren't having fun, and. Something happened. I think it was like the second show that I was doing as the producer of it. And Arsenio does his monologue and his fly was down the entire monologue <laughs> and like wide open. I mean, wide, like you could see the bottom of the shirt coming out. I mean, it was just <laughs> how no one saw this. I mean, you know, Brian, there's a wardrobe person who's just supposed to be looking at wardrobe. Like, and if you're a guy dressing a guy, that's all you should be looking at is the fly. That's like the <laughs> thing that could go wrong. And at first, Arsino was like kind of mortified by it. And we all got in a room and we're like, let's just own it. And the next day we brought out the telestrator and showed clips and circled it, you know, and like named it and and had fun with it. And it was like the first time where we thought like we were finding a bit of a voice of let's not be so presentational and let's let the audience in on the funny stuff that's happening here, you know, that we find funny. And I always find that stuff to be the best. And then it kind of takes on a life of its own. So I, I love that stuff. Yeah. You have to embrace that stuff. And the audience, I think lo loves when you just own it and have fun with it. <laughs> well, I think a perfect highlight of that is on Conan as you're playing God. And like you did when you met us, you slipped and, oh, and, and he's like, are, are you drunk? Have you been drinking God? And you're like, yep. <laughs> yeah, it was so fun. Like I'm clumsy to begin with. And then in sandals, I was really hopeless. And I just completely <laughs> slipped on the stairs. And I, I with when we would do a wiki bear bit at Conan too, like a lot of times, like the paper would fall off my voiceover booth thing. And I'd just be scrambling with the paper and he'd be like, he would call out the fact that it was going off the rails. And that would often be the most fun, you know, where I'd be like, just trying to to roll with the disaster. You yes. Know? Those were usually the most fun moments. What There's was your favorite character that you yeah. did on Conan? Um, I think one of them was the Hannigan, the traveling salesman, be, <laughs> partly because it was super fast paced and it was sort of like an old movie. You know, I talk like this. And yeah. uh, and uh, it was it, it was so fun to I wrote that with Michael Komen and Andrew Weinberg, who are uh wonderful writers who created the show Eagle Heart that Chris Elliott started mm. in later. Fantastic show if you ever get a chance to see it. Um not enough people have seen it. And um but uh that was such a kind of a throwback. Like I've always loved old movies and you know from the 30s and things like that. So it was very uh fun to kind of do that. And I always loved doing the interrupter who is the silly kind of another character that was had not based in reality at all uh dressed like a musketeer and <laughs> runs in interrupting the show and uh, Artie Kendall, the ghost crooner was always fun to do too, right. partly because it was, uh, and I, but there were a lot of like little things like doing Frankenstein was always fun. Cause it was kind of like a big kid who was like trying to please his parents. Like, ah, you know, <laughs> and, uh, it was just, it, so it, it was a very goofy version of Frankenstein. So that was Plus, always Brian, didn't that also just make you think like you were in the 
you were in the entertainment business. You were in show business. You get to sit in a makeup chair. You get to get uh, the full Frankenstein makeup put on you. Like, I, I just always think that, like, you know how you were talking about how you never got over being at 30 Rock and, and how cool that was? When I started working at Warner Brothers, I remember somebody told me, like, if it ever gets boring that you're working at the Warner Brothers lot, then get the hell out of the business because this is why you did it. And I could just imagine, like, I've never been able to be somebody in front of the camera. I was always behind the camera. But, you know, Ward and I perform stuff together at, at Indiana, and I always got a kick about being on stage. It's why we do this podcast. We get a kick out of it. But, like, you got to be Frankenstein. You got to be right. Gandalf. You got to be Dumbledore. That stuff well, is so fun. And, like, Frankenstein with Tom Hanks. Yes, yes. <laughs> that was that was nuts because and he was so nice to everybody. It's nice again, like it, it, it's nice when you meet people and I only met him for like a second, but when they're just as nice as you hope they're gonna be, you know. Yeah. And he was so nice to the the crew and the page. And he actually had the idea in that Frankenstein bit to get just as excited about the light switch as Frankenstein did. <laughs> <laughs> so he's clearly a guy who just loves what he does. And he knew it would be more fun if Frank if he got as excited as I did. And so He's a guy like Conan used to say, and uh, Stephen said the similar things too. That Hanks is one of those guys who will stay up all night with the writers and try to come up with an idea. Like at SNL, he was one of the hosts that would stay up all night writing. He didn't go home to his hotel and just order room service. He wanted I love to love that and jump. And it shows in his work, you know. You totally. Can... I David also ask pumpkins. Yeah, come on, oh, yeah. let's go. Yeah, <laughs> I also, I also fun. think like a guy like Hanks. Like, look, I know he's made great movies. Okay, I get it. I mean, Saving Private Ryan, like there's a ton of them that are great. But give me the money pit. The money. Give me, <laughs> like, give me Splash. Give me the burbs, even. Like Joe, Joe I, versus the volcano. Yes, I just, he is one of the funniest actors ever. He is so funny. And I wish, I feel like, like his career has become so big that he feels like he has to do those movies, but then he can do David S. Pumpkins or go right. to SNL. And that's like his outlet to, or do something on Conan. And that's his outlet to be what he really is, which is just a super funny guy. Yeah. To this day, like if he comes on the, the Colbert show or, or when he used to come on Conan, he, he always was up for doing something or trying a bit. Yes. Those are a lot of times like our favorite guests, like, Will Ferrell was another guy who, if if he came around and it sounded like a fun idea, he's like, "Let's do it." Like we had we had one idea at Conan where um, for Will to that he was obsessed with training dogs and having them do elaborate tricks, and we got a bunch of completely untrained dogs and had like an obstacle course that was set up. And Ferrell's Ferrell's genius was to say, "Let's not even rehearse it because I don't want the dogs to have any loyalty to me." <laughs> <laughs> So when he comes out, he's really seriously saying the dogs are going to go up this uh, ramp and walk across this rope and ring that bell. And the dogs just come out and they're running all over the studio. And they're just, and he's screaming with rage. <laughs> the wonderful thing about guys like Will Ferrell's, and I remember hearing about this from SNL writers, is they'll sell the hell out of any idea, even if it's going down in flames. They will sell it to the last breath. Like um, it's never going to fail because they didn't try, <laughs> you know, but you put your shoulder into it. Right. Absolutely. I mean, that's like, Hey, by, so, by the way, I mean, your friend, Chris Farley, I mean, I, I can't imagine a guy that gave any more to the comedy that he was involved in than Chris Farley. 
Yeah, hundred percent commitment every time in everything. Yeah, I've always admired that because the courage of that and the the lack of vanity. Like Brian McCann, another guy I worked with at Conan, he had no vanity at all and would always like if he was in a speedo, he would push his stomach out as far as he could. And uh, just to if it was funnier, he he'll he would just debase himself to make it, it. If it was funnier, he'll just the guys who'll just toss vanity out the window. I, I have the highest yeah. respect for. Now. It's uh, it's not that normal for late night comedy writers to get as much screen time and to portray as many characters as you did. And obviously you have a great talent for that and you've got to do it beyond the late night shows you've written for. But I, I wonder how did how did that first start to happen that you got to start doing that stuff? Um, I don't remember what your your first character was on Conan, where you appeared on camera, and did it just start to snowball as like the audience really appreciated everything you came out with? That's a good question. Where like I think I started doing little like they would occasionally have the writers do like little like kind of walk on bits, and then it did just kind of grow over the years. I think maybe it start kind of built a little bit through doing voiceover work, and they'd be like, "Oh, Brian can do like characters and stuff." And because uh, I would do sometimes we would do voiceover call in bits or something like I would do Sean Connery calling Conan. And like I was going to say Kilty McBagpipes is one of my favorites and your <laughs> accent. I just love the accent. The accent kills me. It just oh. absolutely murders me. Oh, thanks. It's uh, my apologies to every genuine Scottish person. <laughs> could, could we ask a Scottish Brian about IU basketball? Just one question. I'll, I'll do my best to answer as well as I can. <laughs> how just how big a deal is Indiana University basketball in Dublin? In Dublin, well, first Dublin. of all, in Dublin, <laughs> Dublin, <laughs> Dublin <laughs> you get. And I have Scottish heritage. I'm so sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no, no worries. That's all right. Edinburgh. Dublin should have been part of Scotland. <laughs> the things we fight about. Um, no, it 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 was always fun to do that that stupid stuff and call in like Queen Elizabeth and yeah. <laughs> you know, oh, I always say it. when I I'm it. having no, Ryan was going to do a Scottish accent for us, but I named you. You fucking Lord. ruined. I. You it know what's funny fine. though, Brian? You probably feel this way, and I've talked to Ward about it too. Look, a lot of like the stuff that we do for the podcast, especially when we're together and doing video. When I was running for trustee and we were putting out videos together, or we're in Indiana and we come up with an idea, I always say this feels like a college project. It just feels like, like high school. A, uh, high yeah, school. Fine, <laughs> but. I feel the same way. There have been those times in my professional career where the job feels like a college project. And those are always the best. Those are always the best. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. In fact, a lot of the bits I was doing for Steven show during COVID, I had a little green screen here at home, literally in this room I'm in now. And I would just be looking through my closet for clothes. They'd be like, Brian, do you have a plaid sport coat? And it felt like I was actually in a high school play you know, looking and they would say, can you lift your dog up and we'll do something with your dog? And so it was literally just seat of the pants kind of thrown together stuff. So it definitely feels like a school school play a lot of the time. I love that. I love it. It, it gave me such an appreciation for all those departments that save our butt at the show, like the wardrobe professionals and the people that would design props. Uh, oh, my God. The prop people. Bill Tull, our, our prop master at Conan was just uh, I just he was just he was a lifesaver, you know, and, and our, our props people at this show and the wardrobe people, they've saved our butt countless times. You know, we'd be lost without them.
And, and I do want to say this because I said it in the intro. I think you've done over 2000 episodes of television, right around 2000 episodes of TV. Doing a television show on a nightly basis, which is where Brian has has made his career first on Conan and then and then Colbert. It is a unique beast in television. I've been fortunate to do both. I've done daily shows. I've worked on the Ellen show. I did nightly. And I love that. Truthfully, it's it's uh, the, the rush that you get from that, I think, is unparalleled in television to do it as long as you have done it and as well as you have done it for the level of people that you have worked with. It is the greatest skill in television to be able to do what you've done, to be consistently funny for the number of episodes that you have been is remarkable. It is why I say you are a legend in, in late night television. You are, it is. Um, I mean, I have friends that have worked five, six years in late night television and talk about the career that you've had as like the, the benchmark for wishing that they could, they could get there. It is remarkable. And the fact that you're a Hoosier makes it even better. Um, so that's me giving you more uh, love. But I do want to get back to Indiana to ask Thank you, you. Eric. Thank you for all those kind words. Well, Thank I, you. I mean it, man. It is, it, you You know, look, I, I've been in the business since the, the late 90s when I came out to L.A. And, you know, like, this is a really hard business. And just being able to do it consistently for a long time is the most important thing. I mean, we have families, you know, you're trying to provide for your family and paying it, hopefully getting your kids to go to college and helping them there and get them to go on, on the right path in life in this business where it could change like that is, is so mm -hmm. difficult. So, so it, it is remarkable, but back to Indiana, what's your take on the Mike Woodson era? Um, obviously you're a student of the history of Indiana basketball, you came to like IU around the time that Mike Woodson was leaving IU as a player, um, but you're a student and, and you know the history. What's your take on these last several years and where we're heading with Mike Woodson? I'm really excited about it. I think he's great. I love how incredibly cool and funny he is. And uh, I think he's got the program going in a great direction with recruiting and coaching. And uh, I'm really excited about seeing the kind of, game he ends up bringing the the players out with this year you know now that trace isn't the focus even though I, he was awesome you know of course um but uh it'll i'm really really curious to see how the pieces fit together this year but i think he's got the program going in a great direction i have so much respect for him and what he's done as a player and coach in the past and what he's done at iu i think it's been great just i was so excited the first year when we just got back to the tournament i was like so excited about that and now i think you know, just continuing to build on that. Uh, I'm, I'm really excited personally. All right. I've got a two part question for you. First, give us your all time favorite. It doesn't have to be best greatest all time favorite starting lineup for the Indiana Hoosiers. And then, and I think I asked you something similar for the class, your all time starting five for comedy. Oh wow! Ooh. Oh, let's see. for for IU. Um, I think I'd probably put Isaiah, you know, as the point guard. Um, I think yeah, I'm a little prejudiced, but I'd probably put Randy Whitman in there just because he was just one of my sure. favorite players and and such a, a you know solid player. Um, Scott May maybe. Mm -hmm. you know, 
Um, and I know there's guys like George McGinnis, who I, I know is legendary and I just don't know. These are your, well your faves, your faves. But, yeah. I think, um, let's see. And then let's see for, for center. I might, I might throw trace in there. Just maybe I have a recency bias, but I think sure. he's been, been great to have, uh, there in recent years. And then, um, let's see, I know that guys like, it's so hard to leave off people like Quinn Buckner or Keith Martin, those guys, but, um, yeah, how many have I tossed in there? So you've got Isaiah, Randy, you've got, uh, Trace as your center and you've got Scott May as a, as like a modern four or three. So you need kind of like a power forward, I think. Yeah. Maybe someone Maybe someone like Eric Gordon or something like you know, would see. Uh, sure, go. You can go small ball. Small ball, yeah. Where yeah, I don't know. It, yeah. I'm the, sorry, I'm a little uh, flustered here thinking about all the great names. Um, well, and so many great players that uh, it's like, daunting. You know, about, you know, Kent Benson or McGinnis and them as the in there too. I like it. I like you going with the guys that meant something to you, like Isaiah and Randy. That's important because. That's what I would do. I would put Greg Graham in it because Greg Graham meant something to me. I just loved him, but and he's Alford, not listed. You know, it's, it's like Mount Rushmore. It's Alford. hard to like leave Alfred up there because he he was so huge when I was there, and he just was such a an incredible. Yeah, I wish totally. I could. I'd like to toss him in there too. Yeah, no, we we could ask you for your top twenty, and we'd be wringing hands about who's twenty one and twenty two. It's it's an sure, impossible sure. question, as is the comedy question, because you're it's the Olympics of comedy. Uh, you're assembling your dream team. You're the coach. Uh, you know, I'll give you a sixth man or woman if you need it. But but who who do you? Yeah, you just got to make the world laugh. Who's who's who are you sending out onto the court? Well, let's see. It's so hard because I, I think about sketch performers and then like stand-ups and like, it's such a apples and oranges right. thing a lot of the mm. time. Um, I think it's really Brad, a terrible question. I mean, it's yeah, a terrible I, question. You can tell him that, Brian. You can say I get it's it. I, it's, I think it's it's just so hard to narrow it down. But I think guys like uh, Corral feels like kind of a utility player you could throw in anywhere. Um, and I think uh, Tina Fey, you know, her her mind and her ability to shape material in addition to performing it. Uh, she's just got that amazing mind. And um, Amy Poehler is another one who can just do anything. Like she was in the very first sketch I ever wrote at Conan. So I, I always, the Andy's little sister sketch with the pigtails. Yep. I'll always be grateful to Amy. And um, I think uh, Colbert's another one who could like, just has that mind that can make everything better you know, like with in, in the moment. Um, but then I think about legends I grew up with, like, like the SCTV, but like uh, Martin Short, oh. and I'm getting into way too many now, or Catherine O'Hara, you know, these people who I idolize beyond words or Carol Burnett or these people or I, I grew up with. So I'm getting way past five. No, it's it's a, <laughs> such a tough, it's such a tough thing. I've never thought about it either, but like every name is coming. Like you say Martin Short, how do you have Martin Short not on the list? And if you have Martin Short not on the list, how do you not have Steve Martin with him? Mm-hmm. I know Steve, Steve Martin right? is yeah. One he Steve Martin was such a rock star to me growing up, you know, in every way. Like he he would, would play stadiums. You know, it's yes. hard to even remember that. I don't know if you guys are old enough to remember. He was he would play rock stadiums. You know, and it was incredible. And uh, yeah, he was amazing. And and Conan in terms of when he, he would just walk into a room 
like like if you listen to his podcast, you can pick up on this, yes. but it's just nonstop bits, <laughs> like absolutely nonstop hilarious bits all the time. And uh, it's so funny because he and Steven are so different in a lot of ways. They're they're both brilliant minds, but they're uh, it's easy to see why they're they're friends because they <laughs> they kind of just they had they're as much writers as they are performers, you know. Right. And okay. they're they're constantly writing while while they perform. Like that's what we always talk about, you know, like the best talent are the ones that are producing themselves. I'm I'm not talking about acting now. I'm talking about kind of more non-scripted sketch or improv. The best performers are the ones that are also producing. Like they know if I do this, then this person is going to do this. I'm going to set them up for this. Like they just some people have that mind that is uh it's amazing to watch, you know, and and we you've been lucky to work with many of them. It really is. It's so funny too when I was leaving uh Conan and asking Conan's blessing to go back to New York and everything, and he couldn't have been nicer about it. I was like, why does this conversation feel so strange? And I realized it was one of in all in 18 years, I'd probably had two genuine <laughs> just sincere conversations with Conan because <laughs> it was always just bits. And I was like, why does this feel so weird? Because he was being so nice and he was being, uh, but he would usually just be walking in with his guitar and just doing bits with like his, like a tweed cap and just, so it was just <laughs> nonstop. And I was like, um, so it, yeah, it was very strange adjustment to just have a regular conversation with him. Okay, and one one follow-up on that, which is more along the lines of what Eric was asking about the team and where the team's going. When you're looking to where comedy is going now, outside of your own workplace, um, who are you looking at? Who are you listening to? Maybe newer voices on the scene that you really think have something special going. And, and you could even point us or listeners to as like, hey, keep an eye on these folks. This is this is kind of where it's going. You know, I uh, there's probably all kinds of great stuff that I'm a little out of the loop on. But I do know uh, I, there's probably this isn't probably going to be a shock to anybody, but. I assume anybody that's seen, I think you should leave, you know, with Tim Robinson has got to love it. I, I, it's one of those newer shows that actually had me literally crying <laughs> with laughter, but there's, there's some really brilliant people out there. Uh, not so much up and coming, but like, like Amber Ruffin, who I just love, uh, who, you know, had her own show on the Peacock, Peacock. and stuff that I think should, should have her own talk show. And she writes like, she wrote the the book for the Broadway musical Some Like It Hot, which I only yeah. recently found out that she did that. So there's all these wonderful people out there that are up and coming. And um, there's, uh, yeah, the, and it's fun too. Sometimes I'll just, just see people doing videos online, like this woman, Kylie Brakeman, who, you know, I think she's writing for Fallon now or something, but she's she does these wonderful character videos that are just, I love her point of view and, um, yeah, there's a lot of great people out there up and coming. I think, uh, I just wish I wasn't so out of the loop on, on a lot of the newer people, but no, those yeah. are good names. I mean, Amber yeah. Ruffin is, she's a special, she's a special talent. I, I got to work with her on an episode of a show and she was, uh, she's smart. Like she is, she's out there as far as like how fast her mind works. She's really good. I really liked her and super nice. She was just great really really nice person you you root for her yeah she came out of the chicago scene too but after i did so i didn't really know her in chicago i got to know her later and she's uh, just a yeah wonderful person in addition to being hilarious well brian 
we could do this for hours and hours and hours and hours. Uh, I hope we get to do it in person soon. We, you and I have uh, missed connections a couple times uh, when I've been in New York. Um, but we should definitely next time we're all in Bloomington, we should at least go to little Zagreb's or something together and do this over a meal. And we would love to have you back on the podcast. I mean it when I said, you know, we talked about all the people that you were lucky to work with. The truth is all those people were lucky to work with you as well. You're a supremely talented guy. So funny, so respected in this business. Everybody knows your name. Everybody, um, has nothing but good things to say about you. And it's been a pleasure to get to know you just a little bit over the last few years. And I hope that continues to grow because it's a pleasure every time we get to talk to you. Thanks. I feel the same way about talking to you guys. And uh, it's been such a, a treat getting to know you after listening to you for quite a while before I got to know you. And uh, and thanks for having me on. It's a real, real treat to come on and talk to you after being a listener for so long. Well, uh, we're, we're, oh. Oh, I was going to say something. Yeah, I was just going to, before I forgot, I was going to get the Twitter, the Twitter thing, but go ahead. No, no, you can no allow me to say a goodbye, a, a, a goodbye. <laughs> We're, Brian, I'm just so proud you're a Hoosier. You know, I don't think there's anything more valuable in the world than laughter. And I really mean that. And that you've been responsible for so much laughter for so long. And, and that we all share Bloomington as a spiritual home with you is it's, it's a real point of pride. And thank you for sharing that with us. Oh, thank you so much, Ward. I appreciate that. It's, it's great to get to know you guys. I, I love that I first met you guys actually on campus too, which yes. is really cool. So, <laughs> um, and there is just one thing more valuable than laughter. And that just would be a lot of money, just to like a <laughs> boatload you know what I mean? Like a giant yeah, boat full totally. of money. Yeah. That is better and more valuable than laughing. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> All right, Brian, thanks so much, buddy. Thank you, guys. Thanks. Have a good night. That was a guest. That was a guest. Look, you said it, I think, at least once or twice. I said it at least once or twice. I'm just so proud that that guy is a Hoosier. He's iconic and for a guy who has gotten a lot of screen time compared to most people who try to make a go of it in this business, he's still ultimately, you know, unsung like that. Brian Stack is not a household name across this country as he deserves to be. But if we've gotten him one step closer to being a household name in Hoosier households, um, there is some justice because that guy has put so much hilarity into the world and he is an Indiana Hoosier. And he is a household name in the world of late night comedy, for sure. I mean, you're right. Like, it hasn't extended beyond that, as it should, because he's well, so talented. But, but in though, this business, he's just so well-respected and well-liked. Probably in a lot of ways, this would have been a good question to ask him. Does he have the best of both worlds? He's had this incredible career. He's got to work with all the funniest people on earth he's got to you know from my point of view being on camera is so fun and getting the hair and makeup and doing the bits and and performing with those people yet he can probably go out to eat and not get harassed yeah no it's a good point it's an absolute good point we have the worst of both worlds we don't have the fame or fortune from being on camera, yet we also get harassed by those <laughs> that don't like us. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, generally, we can go around unmolested uh, anywhere in the world. But when we get back to, to Bloomington, at least, a lot of people can point out that we're idiots right to our face. Those are the two idiots. <laughs> All right. Well, this is double the trouble, double the fun. 
what were those old Spearman commercials? Remember those? Uh, yeah, I think. Double Mint Twins? The Double Mint Twins. Yeah, I don't know if they ever said double the trouble. That seemed kind of maybe. No, they wouldn't say that. They wouldn't off say that. message. <laughs> a little, little weird. Uh, but we're going double the fun because we have another guest coming to you right now, a guy that we've been wanting to talk to for a while that gives us a really interesting perspective from the inside of the Indiana University basketball program. And it's the type of interview we've talked about doing for a long time. And the timing worked out, and we love this guy, so let's get to it. Here comes a guest. Here comes a guest. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, he's here. He's with us. We've been wanting to do this one for a very long time, and it has long last occurred. It's occurring now, actually. But with who, Eric? Who is it? Well, I want to preface it by this. Normally, I say hailing from, and then I list some things. As I was doing my research on this gentleman, and we are all friends, so I did reach out to him to say, hey, can you give me any, like, you know, bio stuff? And this is the response I got. I don't think anything other than former Indiana men's basketball manager is relevant. <laughs> so that's what we're going to go with. Hailing, hailing from Bloomfield, Indiana, a gentleman. I did say. You did. I did, you did. say Bloomfield. You did. But that, that I knew. That, that part I knew. That, I needed I, some. Yeah, I, I mean, that part, I didn't need your help on that part. Hailing from Bloomfield, Indiana, a gentleman who is a former IU basketball manager as of just a few months ago. We've been excited to talk to him, a four-year manager at Indiana. He did play basketball for Bloomfield High School, though, correct? I did. Yes. yes. Well, there you go. That would have been relevant. Please welcome. Again. Please welcome a Hall of Fame manager, Grayson Medina. Hall of Fame manager, I do. I don't know about that. I was there for four years for sure. Well, <laughs> we'll see when the first ballot comes up. I, I'm guessing it's going to be unanimous. Grayson, you know what we like to do here with our friends, and we are friends. We like to call them by their nickname. Now, do you have a nickname we can call you by? If not, one comes instantly to mind because I'm a child of the 80s. Well, Throughout, throughout my life, Grayson gets shortened to gray a lot, mm -hmm. which it's funny at, at IU, you know, like with the basketball program and stuff, nobody calls me gray because nobody, you just, I, I don't introduce myself as gray. So nobody would really think of it, but like at Bloomfield, I'm, I'm gray Medina mostly, which, and so that, that, I know that's not a cool nickname. That's not a I cool nickname. Wait, cool. nobody um, calls you funky cold. Yes. Yes. They, yes, they do. <laughs> <laughs> yes, they do. I would My, have gone. I would have gone one step further and just said Tone Loke. Like we just call you Tone Loke. Okay, I don't. I don't mind that. I don't mind that. My All dad's right. gonna like that. The Medinas are gonna like that. Oh, I have a cousin. I have a cousin named Cole, which that's a whole nother level. Yeah. Oh my. Right. God. And is <laughs> and is Cole funky? <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> well, we know music is a part of this story, but we'll get to that later. What What are you doing in your postgraduate life besides being in a bunker at Bloomfield High School? Which is, for people just listening, that's that's where Grayson is. No, not high school, right? Elementary school. Well, it's oh, a, elementary it's school. They're all together, but I am in the elementary portion. My mom is a second grade teacher 
And in her classroom, just looking around, I see a lot of memorabilia that I have dropped her way over the years. Um, her first her first favorite player of the Gray Medina manager era was Armand Franklin. That was her first favorite player. He, hey. He's cute. I get it. Um, so I've, I've got a pair of Armand Franklin shoes over there. But the favorite thing that I have in here is it's a seat. It's a stool cushion from, you know, the stools we have during timeouts. And it's from the Minnesota game this past year where Ray sat down during a timeout in the last 50 seconds of the game and his chair just snapped. It just busted right off. <laughs> so the, the cushion that busted off, that, that made its way home with me. Was that um, was that the game that Yah coached? Yes. Yes. Yes, it was. Wow. So <laughs> you have a, a, a busted seat cushion from the first victory of the Yusir Rosemont head coaching career. Absolutely. Not the last, surely. All right, dude, let's get let's get into this a little bit because we have wanted to talk to an IU basketball manager for a long time. We're friends with many of them. We've met many of them at various functions. I mean, lots of guys that have been really helpful to us and connected us with different people, and we're going to have them on. We're going to do a big manager episode at one point and just get a bunch of them on, but you're special because we've gotten to know you over the last several years. You've been great to us every time we've been in there. Let's go back and just start from your your childhood. I say we go back to the beginning and how Indiana basketball became something that you cared about. So that's a great it's a great question. Um, so I'm from Bloomfield, Indiana, which for people that are listening that don't know, is a half hour down the highway from Bloomington. Just just a crazy basketball community. It's it's the Hoosier. It's the town Hoosiers is about. Not really, but that idea it's that type of town um when i was younger for probably five six seven eight my dad was always active in the basketball program he was the freshman coach he was the jv coach for a year and during that time we had a coach named ron mcbride who was the coach here for a long while and just kind of a a very great basketball figure of the area and i got to learn you know about the seriousness of it, you know, how to take basketball seriously. And you're always, you're always hearing about IU. Now, when I was growing up and learning about it, we, it was kind of the, when I first started to take interest in basketball, we weren't that good. We were bad. In fact, yeah. real bad. Actually. Um, so we had our coach Woodson camps this, this past, uh, a few weeks ago. And there was a kid there, and I, w- I was talking to him a little bit, and I was talking to his grandmother, who was there, and uh, found he was related to Devin Dumas, oh who was God. a player, which is a very obscure Indiana basketball player in in most fans' minds. I said, "You're talking to the right guy," and uh, <laughs> so we got we got Devin we got Dumas in there, and he got he signed our uh, our former player wall. Wow! And but n- not to get not to get too off track or anything, but, but yeah, growing up and I grew up in the Jordan holes era, Cody Zeller era, those teams. I mean, those teams for, you know, a lot of, for, for most purpose brought Indiana back, you know, just relevantly. Um, I mean, Cody's on the back on the covers sports illustrated type stuff, you know, and just players that kids my age, love um so in high school 
I mean, I'm always I'm I'm go and I'm going to you know probably two or three games a year. Um, nothing nothing too crazy, but when you live that close, you get I'm getting a, I'm getting tickets a tickets for a game every year, you know, for Christmas or for my birthday or something, and we're going. Oh, that's cool. And so, in high school, I figure out pretty early that I'm not going to go play at the next level, right? <laughs> um, but I know I I love basketball and. Coaching is just something that's always been in my mind uh, ever since I was young. And I, I knew a little bit about kind of being a manager. I did not, not a lot about it. I didn't know much about it at all, but I knew that it's something that definitely interested me. So actually the first connection that I made was with Cooper Bybee. Well, wait, hold on. You're a- going too fast. You're going way too fast. We got to slow down the train here. I bet, so- I bet my- that's all right. That's all right. You're not used to being the guest. You're used to running practices and telling guys what to do and knocking on doors in Chicago to make sure nobody's leaving their hotel room, <laughs> failing at that miserably. You're used to that stuff. I, but this is different. I, wasn't, I was not on that trip. Oh, there. okay. Okay. Look, look how quick he was not on that trip. All right. <laughs> so growing up, who was your favorite player? Did you have a single favorite player? Was it Cody or Jordy or, or was there somebody yeah. else that was like a legend for you? Cody Zeller was that guy for sure. Got it. Got it. Good. My, my good Cody Zeller story is that when I was, when I was young, I went to these camps put on by the Zeller family, the Mm -hmm. distinction camps. That's what they were called. And I had a lot of fun at them. They were very fun. And I had this basketball that just an IU, it was a white autograph basketball. It's four autographs. And I had it because and I believe it was 2009 or the 0809 season. I took the basketball to Hoosier Hysteria to have it signed because they did they did the autograph line after back then. I I don't think they still do. They they definitely don't. Um, but they had the autograph line back then, and I had that basketball. But they were only allowed to sign these like like the floating head posters, basically. Uh huh. That's all they were allowed to sign. But I. I had one guy sign it before security was like, Hey, Hey, they can't sign that. And it was Corey Barnett. Okay. <laughs> yes. So I have this back still sitting on a shelf at home that in the bottom left corner has Corey Barnett zero <laughs> and, and very tiny. And in big letters in the middle is Cody Zeller. Nice. But how'd you get so, the Cody because, autograph at the camp? I am at, at the camps. Yeah. Awesome. Okay, so it is fortunate. You are at the perfect age to have come of age at like 12, like Eric and I were with Calbert Shady, right? So that's – Cody's going to be your guy for for life. And that set you on a path of thinking that IU could be what it had been before you were born. Um, Of that era, or really, you know, in this time growing up, do you have like a favorite – moment or game because you know eric and i can geek out way too long about this calvert game or that calvert game what was it for you yeah i'm very i'm very excited to tell you this um and many people don't believe me when i say this but i was at the game at the minnesota game for tom pritchard's dunk you know the uh, yes the the pritch slap yeah of course (laughs) but also that game I believe it was Oladipo's freshman year. He had a dunk where he kind of came baseline and he hung on the rim a little bit with one hand and they gave him a technical foul. Okay. And then the kid from 
Minnesota missed both free throws. And that is the loudest I have ever heard Assembly Hall. Really? When, when the kid missed both free throws. Or just really? that. I mean, I was young then, but that moment is just ingrained in my mind as that is so loud. It was so loud in there. It was unbelievable. Well, it does that, make a little bit of called. sense. <clears throat> I can understand that because at that time, there was so much pent-up frustration because the team was not good. And mm-hmm. and then all that stuff, good stuff started happening as far as the dunk and Victor's dunk. And then it was like the refs were taking something away from us. So you know everybody was just ready to explode. And so when that asshole missed two free throws, it just gave everybody permission to lose their minds. I get that. Absolutely. I love that. Now, now side note, on the on the road this year as a senior manager was really the fr- I went on a trip once last year but then this year I pretty much went on most of the trips me and the other seniors um when we were at Purdue which we we won yes. you know people just to to preface we won <laughs> yeah bring that up as often as you want Edie had a dunk to make it 8-0 in like the first 2 minutes when he dunked it to go up 8-0, that was the loudest sound I've ever heard in my life. Really? It really? does not it does not louder than that. It was crazy. Now, Purdue, Mac Arena, I think, is ugly. It's an ugly place to play a game. It's not very aesthetically pleasing. No. Not near like Assembly Hall. Not even close. When I whenever a, a job that a job that managers have is hosting teams when they come in, not just on game days, but like night before on shoot around. Um, so other teams will come in to, you know, get their shots in and whatnot. And more often than not, well, every time when guys would, we'd let them in the back door and they'd come down the steps, they all have their phones out, video in assembly hall, you know. And what I heard a lot of people say was, it's like a church in here. Mm. I think that speaks kind of how, how pretty it is, you know, yeah. and like the wooden, the wooden bleachers are out and not to get, not to get too sentimental or anything, but it's a pretty sight. Yeah, man. <clears throat> it's a church here and it's a toilet up there. I mean, very both, you know, kind of white and, uh, you know, got to keep them clean, Correct. but, uh, all right. So Cody Zeller's your favorite player. You realize you're not going to play basketball at the next level. And then, Right. Go ahead and give us that first connection that you had. So I didn't have, so there's a coach, his name is JB Neal. He was the coach at Edgewood high school in Ellettsville, right outside Bloomington. And he had Cooper Bybee, who was a walk-on. Uh, JB became after I graduated and still is the head coach at Bloomfield high school. And Cooper come in to one of the, our basketball camps. Well, it wasn't my basketball camp at that point. I was I was too old, obviously. But Cooper came in and talked to the young kids. And Cooper Bybee is can only be described as salt of the earth, wonderful person. Love that guy. I told him I was I was interested in becoming a manager. He gave me the number of a Jason Gandhi, who was a manager that you know, yeah. and I believe is still working in the athletic department. Yeah. Um, Jason Gandhi then told me, Hey, there's this guy named Ben Sander who runs the, and you know, 
people who want, if there are any kids wanting to be a manager, none of these people are here anymore. So right. <laughs> Ben Sander, who was then team and recruit analyst, but also was in charge of the managers. He said, Hey, this is the guy you need to talk to. So during my summer orientation in July, I went to the cook basketball office and I knocked on the door <laughs> and Steven surface, who is now the director of basketball operations. Yes. Who was sitting at the front desk, opened the door for me. And I said, I'm here to see Ben Sander. <laughs> and he, uh, he just said, somebody's here to see you. So Ben came out and I introduced myself. I gave him my quick elevator pitch. And looking back, what's funny about my elevator pitch is I thought what was important is that he knew that I could play basketball a little bit. <laughs> like I'm not, I'm not chubby kid. I'm not just some chubby kid coming in off the street. Like I can play. <laughs> so I know for a fact that I worked in, I was a starter on a team that just won the regional my senior year. I, so I, I worked that in that looking back, that sounds ridiculous that I put that in the first 60 seconds. I ever met the guy whose life was in my hands, but so we made that connection. He gave me his card, which I was very thankful for. Uh, so we, we texted back and forth a little bit. Um, when school came around in late August, there was, they tweeted it out and they texted it out to whoever's number they had at the time I thought. And so we're going to have a call out meeting for everybody who's interested. So we went and I went to the call out meeting and Ben was there. Um, I think all the, all the current managers at the time were there and we all signed up for interview slots. So we had the, had the call out meeting. They gave us the spiel on, you know, this is what it takes. You know, this is kind of your, this is what you're expected of time-wise and just kind of, you know, getting understanding the dedication of it. So we signed up for interviews I interviewed. Wait, wait, let me let me pause because I think that at that point I would have been having second thoughts. What did they tell you, and how realistic were they in in what is the time commitment expected from an IU manager? Um, so so class is always going to come first for managers because they just they just can't build the practice schedule and everything around our practice get or our class schedule and the players. Like the sure. players, the their, their their class schedule and practice schedule are very well balanced, and that's why we have so many managers. Is because we're not always going to be able to be there all the time. Okay. Um, but it's, I mean, it's pretty well expected that when you're not in class during the week, you're going to be around, rebounding. You're going to be, you know, taking gear up to Rusty, bringing down gear from Rusty. Um, and it's not like you just need to be sitting in there doing nothing um, if there's nothing to do, but being available at all times pretty much throughout the week, throughout the weekend, throughout the middle of the night sometimes. Um, but yeah, it's pretty, it varies time to time. I mean, right now in the summer, I don't know exactly where they're at schedule wise, but especially the freshman managers who have to live in a dorm that sometimes sometimes the dorms are out like so they have to go home so they can't be there and just little stuff like that but one thing i want go ahead no i was going to say take us back to the interview slots yeah, so you you sure. sign up to, for interview slots who are you interviewing with so i interviewed with 
three uh, people who are going to be senior managers, either seniors or juniors. And I, I can't remember exactly who was in there. I'd love to give them all shout outs. Um, Matt Miller, Carter Sims, Zach McEwen, maybe Jacob Mualem. Jacob, I mean, and there are plenty of managers that have gone on to have wonderful careers. Jacob Mualem is one that just sticks out to me so much because he went straight from manager to New Zealand Breakers down in the NBL. Then I think he was there for a couple of years and he's been with the Trailblazers since then. Wow. Last year, he won Summer League Championship with the Trailblazers. And he's, I believe he's still with them. It's unbelievable. And Zach McEwen, who I just mentioned, went to be a GA at Florida Atlantic with Dusty May. Nice. And and now now I, I believe he's back back around Indy. But uh, but yeah, just and there's a great group of guys. One question that I remember they asked. Well, so they asked me three three questions pretty much. One was, what do you like? Why do you like Indiana basketball? Basically, like what do you love about it? Um, what makes you think you'd be a good manager? And the third question was, how many golf balls do you think fit in a regulation size bathtub? <laughs> that was the third question. I would like to take some time real quick to get your guys' initial answers oh. because it's very on the spot. Okay. okay. I'm going to say uh, that question. How many, golf- how many golf balls in a regulation bathtub? Yeah, I got a number. I'm going to say, well, we should say our number at the, we got to write it down because I, we can't use one of us, you know, cheating. I feel like Ward is. Wait, I got, I got, I I got, I'm going to, I'm just going to throw out. Okay. Ready, Ward? I'm just going to show mine. One, two, three. You see that? Oh, no, I can't see it. I'll just tell you mine. What's yours? 1,650. I was 1,250. Okay. Now, the answer is closer to 12,000. <laughs> what? It's, it's it's way more than you think. But this is what I'm saying. Think about if you, if you rolled in a bag of 100 golf balls into a bathtub, it's not even going to close to cover the bottom of it. Right. So think of it that way. It's not even close, gonna close to cover the bottom of it. Just a hundred golf balls. Twelve thousand. So That's I bullshit. Guess, no way. No way. Look, look, at, look it up. Look at. Look it up. I promise. I, I think there are a couple of different answers out there, but anywhere from ten to twelve thousand, I believe. All right. Um, so what did you answer? I. I answered six hundred. Okay, <laughs> bad answer. That's a bad answer. <laughs> bad answer. I said six hundred. They said, that's exactly right. <laughs> they, were kind of, they, were kind of, they were kind of like, how did you know that? And I was, I was like, oh, it's just a guess. I mean, it's just a, just a guess. And then I got out and I looked it up and I was wrong. And I was like, I don't know if they were messing with me or if they really didn't know and just really didn't care. Now, flash forward three years, me and a couple others would call ourselves the head managers um, we're in charge of interviews and yeah, I'm, I'm asking every kid that question. <laughs> Some kids would guess a few thousand, a couple kids guessed 250. Mm, not, terrible. A great, not a great answer, but 
not much, but not 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 much worse than mine was. I right. Mean, so right. Yeah, but be that much of a hater. But I, but yeah, we had the internet test, so that uh, happened probably the end of August. Just no, for the record, uh, Google told me anywhere from ten thousand to thirteen thousand. I I my my mind is blown. It just doesn't seem like the reality we're living in. <laughs> it's crazy. I'm I'm a little wrong on the timeline. It was a little later than that. I know it was it was around October first when I got hired, so it was a little later than that. But how I had did you respond when you got the news? Or are we not there yet? Well, so it, it was about two weeks of nothing after my interview before I got the call, which was nerve wracking. Just sitting in my blazing hot dorm at Right Quad, just sweating every day, um, just wait waiting on a waiting on a good or bad call, and I finally got a good call from Ben Sander. I think he just thought there's really he waited two weeks because it was like there's really nobody better that we can hire. We just have to hire this kid that lives a <laughs> we're gonna hire him he lives a half hour away, but I'm very very glad they did. That's awesome. All right. So you get uh you get this very cool honor to be an IU basketball manager, but as you've already laid out, it comes with a shit ton of work. When did you realize how much work it would actually be. Okay. I would like to pause and rewind just very slightly. Cause there's a part I'm leaving out okay. that I would be very upset if I didn't tell this part of the story when I was a, I, and it's crazy to me now that I'm not, that I didn't remember this part my first time through when I was going into my senior year of high school, we were playing at D one basketball camp uh, up in Fort Wayne. We're at the Spice Fieldhouse, which now is pickleball courts, which, <laughs> which is funny. And I I hurt my knee at the time. We think pretty badly. It ended up being about uh, ended up being about a two month thing. It wasn't that bad. Um, but I hurt my knee pretty bad. And my high school coach at the time, Ron McBride, who I said is kind of a legend around these parts, knew Tim Garl very well-known athletic trainer of course legend uh, so he he pulls some strings he gets me in to see tim one day um so i go in and i go into cook hall and i see they're having team camp at this time um i didn't know that they, i didn't know that they even did team camp at that point and i see this Big, lanky kid wearing a Center Grove jersey. His name's Trace Jackson Davis. And he's, he's, uh, you can tell that, uh, the coaches know who he is. Um, there's not much more detail to go into, but yeah, (laughs) Trace Jackson Davis. And my dad asked me, he said, Do you want to ask for a, for a picture or something? And I was like, I said, We're the same age. I said Corver is not asking. I said Corver is not asking Kevin Love for autographs in the locker room. I mean, what, what are we What are we talking about here? So, so I got to meet. I got to meet with Tim, and he was very helpful and gave me very good advice on taking care of myself and the process getting back. And I had a very fun, successful senior year, and I have him to thank for that. Now, I also think I made a decent impression on him in that time. I got to meet him twice about my knee 
And um, I think uh, that couldn't have hurt me in the manager hiring process. Sure. I don't know. Uh, I don't want to say that's the only reason I got hired because that would hurt my ego a little bit. Sure. But I'm sure, sure he he might have put in a good word for me. Um, but yeah, but yeah, that's uh, that's pretty much it. I love okay, that so, on the hiring so, process. So the um, let's let's get into Eric's question about the time commitment too, and maybe you can fold into answering it. Like when you realized, holy shit, this is going to consume my whole life outside of class. This is going to be my college experience. Um, what was the motivation? Because there's one thing about loving Indiana university basketball and just wanting to be about around the program, or were you already mm -hmm. thinking like, this is strategically going to be really helpful as a career in coaching or where were you coming from on that? Well, I think I was pretty well prepared for it. Just talking to Ben and getting in with Ben early and maintaining a relationship with Jason Gandhi. And he kind of, he would talk to me about it a lot and he was very helpful. Um, so I don't think that the, I think I was ready for like worst case scenario, no free time, no free time, that type of grind. And it's, and it's not that like every manager has a personal life and um, it's not like a, it's not like you're, you know, restricted all the time, but I was, I was, I was pretty good. I would feel like I was pretty good about being around my first, my first few years, um, just being there to rebound. And a lot of guys, you know, players will make relationships with you. You'll make relationships with players. Joey Brunk was my guy you know? And so I'm, I'm in there, I'm going to be shooting with him. And another thing that is gear shifts, gear shifts is a big thing for managers. What's a gear And shift? that is, so there are two bins of laundry in the locker room at all times. One for the players loops. Players have these laundry loops that they string their uniform, socks, underwear, anything dirty, everything gross on this loop. They throw it in the bin and they normally make it in the bin. I don't, we don't always have to pick them up off the floor and throw them in the bin. Um, and we end up bin of towels and we wheel them up to Rusty Stillions. Legendary. I don't know exactly what his title is. Equipment <laughs> guru, godfather, boss. Very cool guy. Great relationship that I got to make over my four years. Him and his crew up there are going to wash it. And then another manager at some point is going to bring it down. That's gear shifts. And it's very time oriented. Can't be messed up because we do the coaches stuff too. coaches not having their loops is not good for managers. Um, so it's a thing that has to be, you got to be on top of it. Now, clearly, clearly taking the clothes to rusty is a shittier job than bringing them back down from rusty. So do you have well, like arguments on who's doing which one? No, so there, so we call it AM and PM gear, you know, morning and morning and night. It's I mean, it's just in a it's just in a bin and you're just wheeling it up. So it's not like you're you're not you just like breathe through your mouth, right? Fingering through a bunch of <laughs> Yeah, but the thing about uh taking gear down is that you distribute it to all the lockers and you fold all the towels. So that's, uh, mm. 
that's a a.m. is when we rusty. We bring it down in the morning, Got and it. that's a little more time consuming. Yeah. Well, unless you're waiting on a guy forever. All right. So let me ask this. Do they circle you guys up either when you're hired or right before you're hired and say, listen, here's the most important thing. You're going to see some weird shit in your time as being an IU basketball manager. There's going to be people that say stuff and do stuff that they shouldn't. There's going to be crazy things said. Practices are insane. Coaches say crazy stuff. Everything has to be kept within these walls. How do they communicate the confidentiality part and how important that is to the managers? So with Coach Miller, um, Ben Sander did a did a really good job of explaining, you know, we're keeping stuff in-house and also being a representative of the program outside of a famous a famous line that I'll always remember and that Ben Sander told me. I don't know if Ben Sander is going to be watching this. I don't know if he'll ever hear this. But he said, I don't want to see you smashing bush lights out on the lawn in your game day polo. <laughs> and that was that, that's a very that's kind of a broad you know you're representative of the program yeah he didn't mean it so um he did mean that literally but <laughs> but ben also did a really good job of you know this is, a, this is a workplace and you know people are gonna be asking you about stuff people are gonna be asking you about stuff for betting all the time oh i mean Really? Not to throw Trey under the bus or anything, but the amount of time, the amount of times I got his Galloway playing tonight, it was a lot of times. Wow, oh, interesting. And and is that coming from st- other students that you think are connected to that that are just gambling a lot? Or are you getting phone calls from like bookies and stuff? Uh, no, nothing, nothing too serious like that. But just you can you can tell just when somebody reaches out out of the blue that hasn't said anything in a while that, you know, Hey, you know, what's, Hey, what's going on. And then the next thing they say is, is Galloway playing tonight? That's a red flag. Wow. Mm. I never thought about that. I never have thought about that. Okay. So wait, hold on. Go ahead. You're no longer in the program. You've, you've graduated, you're moving on. Um, so Correct. what is the craziest shit that happened in there that you could tell us about? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, you don't need to throw anybody under the bus. You maybe don't have to name names, but just something just totally wild that happened that won't get us on probation with the NCAA. Okay. Okay. I have, I have one story and I don't, this isn't going to get in that. This isn't going to get anybody in trouble or anything. You have more than one story, by the way, you have more than one story, but okay. We'll start but with one. This, this is a good, pretty, pretty innocent one that was that was pretty crazy. Also, this is Thanksgiving, my freshman year. We're practicing on Thanksgiving. Um, we had a manager who was ginormous. His name was Jamison Bader. Okay, his name is Jamison Bader. He's still alive. <laughs> He's probably about six eight, three thirty. Left tackle, humongous, big guy. Now, Jamison, it would be in every rebounding drill. He'd have to be block either blocking out or the guy who's going in and trying to get the rebound. There was there was a couple plays in a row 
where, and I am going to throw this guy under the bus because why not? It was Deron Davis. Jameson, Deron thought Jameson was going low a couple times, I think. Maybe being a little dirty. Jameson, nicest guy ever, I promise, was not trying to be dirty. So Deron, one play, instead of turning and going to get the ball, just two hands shoves Jameson just on his back. Just, just, just pushes him about eight feet. Uh, Coach Miller did not like it. They ran for a long time. Mm. It was not. Um, the the phrase "Happy Holidays" MFs might have been thrown around a little bit. Um, <laughs> that was. That, well, that let's. Was a good... I like that. Let's talk a little bit about Archie and um and just the the state of the program when you became a manager because you're a fan. You you probably know what's going on. Um, you know, it was not, uh, it was not all, um, how should we say sunshine and cupcakes going into that season. There was a lot of people that were concerned. It was two years in a row at this point for Archie, right. That Mm -hmm. we had missed the tournament and now you're heading into what ultimately is the COVID year, um, which, which was, which was terrible luck. And we can get into that as well, but what, did you have to have a one-on-one with Archie before you got hired? Did you ever have a one-on-one with Archie and what was your relationship like with him? Okay. So what I will say about coach Miller coaching wise before telling any, I think coach Miller is a very good basketball, a great basketball coach, but he is a hard ass and he will scream in your face. Now at Dayton I think I think that's a great way to coach I think he I think he did a great job and he did he went to the elite eight it was it was great when you're recruiting five stars when you have to recruit five stars and you coach Miller was not gonna cater to egos not wired that way it's tough tough to be wired that a lot of guys aren't um and he probably shouldn't have to be but that's just the way that's just the way things are sure and so it's tough to it's tough to get guys to play for you all the time, you know. It's tough to get guys to play hard all the time, um, and really get them to buy in for you. Whenever maybe they're like, "Why is this guy yelling in my face?" Like you think I don't get it? Type type stuff going on. Um, Justin Smith, Justin Smith is maybe the smartest guy I ever met in my time with you. That guy's a genius. Like he's so he's so smart. And yelling in my face, like, like, why? Like, it's so, so unnecessary. So they, they butted heads all the time. Um, now, Justin Smith, just another thing, freak athlete, built like, built like a train. I've, I've seen a lot of great athletes, Jordan Geronimo, jump out of the gym. Trace did his thing. Nobody was built and moved like Justin Smith. That guy was an anomaly. And still is. I believe he just signed to play with the team in Jerusalem, actually. Oh, really? Um, but what was the – oh, so Coach Miller. Yeah. yeah. Basketball genius. Just, just didn't work out here. I think they're going to they're gonna do fine at Rhode Island, and I, I hope he's the greatest NC State coach of all time one day. I hope he goes there where he's from and kills it and takes Ben Sander with him, and Ben Sander becomes the most famous – 
whatever title he has of all time. <laughs> I, I wonder about this, Archie, in terms of not sort of sucking up to recruits uh, is one thing, but was there a side of him that could connect with the players once they were there? Or was it basically all basketball? If you mess up, I scream at you and then I'm going home. Was was there any really like camaraderie with Archie? I mean, maybe not with maybe not with every player like it could have been, but he had he had relationships. It wasn't totally total alienation. He had relationships with players. Joey Brunk likes Coach Miller. I know that because me and Joey are very close. Right. I can't tell you every perspective on it. I know Joey liked him. I know he wasn't the only one. Um, and think things just didn't work out. My freshman year, 2019, the year it was cut off by COVID, we were going to make the tournament. Yep. Mm-hmm. We might, might have been a play. We were going to make the tournament. Um, so that that gets lost, and I, it didn't happen. Doesn't count. Can't count it for anything. But I think it's. I always think it's worth noting. No, I, I now agree. my I agree. Now my relationship with Coach Miller was different than a lot of managers because the first time, first week I was hired, I went up to him before practice, like nobody would do ever because they're too smart to do that probably. And I said, Coach, can I ask you a shooting question? Because he was he was a great shooter. He said, "Yeah, sure." I said I was doing a little a little research, and I'm kind of saying it serious, kind of saying it like a joke. I was doing a little research. Your junior year, you shot sixty percent from three. And he was like, he's like, yeah. And I said, but you only shot three a game. He said, yeah. I said, so why didn't you shoot it way more? <laughs> and he just kind of he chuckled and he was like yeah my coach my coach didn't know what he was my coach didn't know what he was doing <laughs> and then a few a few support a few support staff members corner me after practice and they were like what did you say to him and i i just told him and they were like and he, he laughed i was like yeah and they were just like wow like that's crazy <laughs> like nobody Nobody does. Nobody just like approaches him like that. That is and, great. Uh, another Coach Miller thing, and kind of Coach Miller staff. This is going to come back to Brian Walsh, who is still there. Is ping pong? Ping pong was a big thing, more so with Coach Miller, because there were some ping pong playing guys. Brian Walsh, very good. The probably the best player I've ever known. Mm-hmm. Johnny Jager, pretty good. Uh, Jack Westerfield, another former GA, pretty good. And myself, I'm a good ping pong player. So I might say great. I say good. <laughs> I say good. Um, so we're playing a little bit, and I find out that Walsh has Walsh has never been beat at Indiana. He has not been beat since they came from Dayton. And, and so he had been there, I think, I believe it was his fourth year. He's not been beaten in three years. And so we play a couple times, and I beat him once. He has not been beaten at Indiana until Gray Medina beat him. Nice. And was a big, that was a big day in the program. So then a couple <laughs> days later, I forget who, I believe it was Dawson Garcia's visit. Mm. I, be, I believe it was. And I'm walking 
in Cook Hall. I'm walking up on the balcony. I'm walking by the conference room. And I walk past the door. And then Ben opens the door. And he says, hey, Coach Miller wants to see you. And I'm I'm frozen. Like, what? You think you're going to be fired? Oh, I, I, have, I have no idea. So I go in. They're all there. I believe it's Dawson. But it, it could have been any recruit and his family there at the conference table. And they're eating Mother Bear's pizza. Mm. And Coach Miller said, did you really beat Walsh's ass at ping pong? <laughs> and I said, I said, he also beat me a few times. But yes, I did. And Walsh was very quick to be like, oh, I mean, I, I took care of him like all the and I was like, whoa, 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 whoa. Yes, I did beat him. But he did. He did beat me a couple times. Also, I think I. I think I got him twice. We probably played 10 times and I got him twice. Maybe, maybe we played more than that. I just try to remember the good. Yeah. Now the first thing Walsh will say is I had my own paddle. (laughs) (laughs) I did have my own paddle that I had brought from it's a, and it's a nice paddle. It has a case. It's nice rubber, blah, blah, blah. And, but, that's this is my game. I I have a, I have kind of a spinny game. I like a I like like a nice rubber paddle. Sure, sure. But, I, I, I I I don't think I've seen anybody roll up to a game with their ping pong paddle in a case before. I, I've not witnessed that. I'm sure like the Olympians do that. What are you? Oh, it was so about? funny. It was so funny. Why do you have that? Eric is unzipping his ping pong paddle from his case, and he's not that good. I've played him. <laughs> you've never you... played. Oh, you've man. never played me with this paddle. <laughs> <laughs> Just saying, I like a guy that brings his own paddle. I like it. All right, let's get into some more dirt here. How how do you walk the line between? You talked about Joey Brunt. Good friends with Joey. We've hung out with you and Joey together. At Great the upstairs guy. pub. That's right. We love Joey. But Little fun. You, you are, while you are part of the team as a whole, you are working for the staff. And the yes. staff relies on you, I think, to be eyes and ears and to keep guys in check. There's like curfew stuff, things like that. How do you walk the line between these guys on the team trusting you to be their friend while at the same time, if shit's going wrong, you do have a responsibility to tell the staff this is going wrong? Yeah, I'm not I'm not really the best guy to ask for that, because even though me and me and Joey are really close, I was too young when I first started, like I was never going out to the bars with the players or anything. Now some some guys were, but and and obviously you know if we're if we're out and we see a guy like you know we're trying to take we're gonna make sure he, he's in good puts himself in good positions, you know not gonna not gonna get mixed up in anything bad, um, but there wasn't really much of an element of I never felt like oh man I've got to tell on this guy or. You know, I've got to I've got to let somebody know because this isn't good. I, there wasn't really any of that going on for me, at least. Yeah. And I don't think that, that I don't think that was really a huge thing. Now, so like when we're when we were on the road during uh, during the season and traveling on the road, you know, we do we do room checks, and guys are guys are pretty good about it. Guys are pretty good about it. Um, now, normally you're on the road. It's 
cold. It's gross. You're, you have a nice <laughs> hotel room. There's really not much, not much we had to worry about during my travel year. Okay. okay. Now that you now, graduated. My junior year, the year before. Oh. Go ahead. Uh, nothing. Nothing. Oh. Go ahead. Okay. Go well, ahead with what you're about to ask. Well, now that you've graduated, um, let's say you could pick uh, three former players. Let's say former players to keep it sanitary that you could go out to the bars with who is going to party the hardest with you out at the bars now that you've all graduated or no longer at indiana university okay i'm going to disqualify joey and cooper bybee okay because because that's something that too easy we do those are your your guys yes and i'm gonna try to not just say walk-ons that i love because you know, I want to give some good names. Um, honorable mentions, though, Nathan Childress and Mike Ship. Love those nice. guys very, very Um, But I'm going to say Trace because when you're with Trace, you're going to have a good time. <laughs> People are going to be around you. Everybody's coming up to talk to you. You're, you're a celebrity with that guy. Um, I'm going to go... I'm I'm kind of building my building my dream lineup here. Actually, this is yeah. this, this is more. I'd I would have liked to have gone out with Devonte Green. Mm. <laughs> okay. Devonte Green. Just a side note: if that guy play, got to play for Coach Woodson, I think Devonte Green has a very different career trajectory. Mm. You know, it's I funny think you you things go. It's funny you bring him up because we, you know, we have Devonte on, and he talked about it too about just how it was a culture clash with him and Archie that they just did not see eye to eye. Archie wanted him to play a different way, and Devonte, that's not how he played, and he had to really change himself, and that's tough to do when you feel like you're playing within a box, you know. And we and know Devonte al- had a ton of talent. Yeah, he also had a couple of injuries, and also. When Rob came in and Rob had a great freshman year, you have you have to kind of okay. Rob kind of looked at he was kind of looked at as the future a little bit maybe, um, and it's it's just it's tough for coaches to balance and it's tough when both guys are dealing with injuries a lot. Tough to get your rhythm, and Devonte right, you- won Devonte won games for us my freshman year multiple times. You know. Oh, yeah. I mean, people talk about the Florida State game. Like, I mean, he he almost single-handedly won the Ohio State Big Ten tournament game, which quite yep. possibly could have gotten us into the NCAA tournament. Like, there, you know, Devontae had moments of huge highs and, and low lows. All right, that's two. You got to finish the question for Ward. Trace and Devontae, who's the third? I, I think I'm going to go race. I think I'm going to go race. I like that. If that's, so, if that's not a book. Not a boring answer. I like race. Okay. I'm going to, so I'm going to go four. I'm just going to go with my Mount Rushmore. Let me add in Deron Davis because wow. him and Devonte were electric together. Just <laughs> comedy wise, very funny guys. And there was, uh, so after games, they have a lot of food catered. A lot of times it's Chick-fil-A and mm. that was Deron. This was my freshman year. Deron was coming out a little late. After after a game, like he had showered late, whatever, and there was a bunch of Chick Fil A left over, 
And he was like, have all, has everybody who wanted to eat had a chance to eat? And I was like, yeah. So he puts in like four or five Chick-fil-A sandwiches into his jacket pockets. <laughs> and I said, whoa, 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 whoa. I said, I don't want to see you up on a table at the jungle throwing these out like Frisbees. <laughs> that, that was the hardest I ever made a player laugh in my fourth year. <laughs> then he was like, wait, 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 wait. Am I going to see you at the jungle? And I was like, like sadly, no, I'm still 18 at that point, I think, probably, or 19. I like that that but, was his response, like, you nailed him. Like, does this guy know that this is what I do? Does this guy know my game? What's going on here? Uh, it was so funny. Another another time after a game my freshman year, I had uh, post-game gear. So I had to wait for all the players to get showered and everything so I could take the uniforms and all their undergarments and stuff up to where I see to get washed. And I walk in the locker room and Trace and Armand, Franklin, and maybe somebody else were just sitting there. And I was like, then this is late, late, late. And I'm like, it's I was like, it's Friday night. Like, I want to get out of here. Like, what do you guys like get out of here so I can leave? Like, what are you doing? Yeah. And they were like, they were like, we're 19. Like, we can't do anything. <laughs> I was like, all right, that's fair. That's fair. Who? I think I think Yogi Ferrell ruined that for everybody. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I'm going to ask you something that you're probably not going to answer, but then I'm going to answer it for you and just see your response. Who's the biggest prick? Who is the player that just <laughs> did not, was not nice to the management team, you included, and you specifically? Which player? Okay, I'm trying to – I don't think that there was anybody who just was F all the managers. I don't think there was anybody like that. Everybody had their guys. Um, there's one guy that I never got along with, but it's also my fault, and that is Tamar Bates. And this is this is this beef history is known a little bit in the program. Okay, let's and hear the beef because, history. And this is so, so this is kind of on me. Is at Mike Woodson camp last year, last summer, he would the players normally officiate games, and the managers are coaching. I'm coaching a group of kids. He's managing or he's uh, officiating. Not officiating well. None none of the players are good. And I mean. <laughs> one guy with one whistle going and it, we kind of go like across the full court. So it's a little shorter. So one guy can kind of cover it if they're trying hard. None of them really try hard. I'm calling every player out except for Anthony Leal. I'll give it to him. Nobody's surprised that he does a good job. Congrats to him. Anyway, Tamar Bates was not good at it. I was getting very frustrated because I'm an idiot and I want to win way too bad. Also, my baby brother is on my team. Ah. Oh. Now, my baby brother is not a six-foot chubby kid. My brother, as we stand right now, is about 6'6", six, six, can dunk, is a good athlete. Uh, he's a little goofy, but we're working on it. Um, and he's going to be a sophomore in high school. Oh, boy. And so he was at camp going into his freshman year because that's the, that's the cutoff. And he's he's the tallest. He's not he's not necessarily the best, but he's tall and very effective. And he was getting hammered every time going to the rim, and I was not happy about it. 
And so I let, I let Scoop hear it a little bit. I probably went a little too far. Something, he's 14 too. That was my, that was my theme, except it wasn't that nice. Now, my team did go on to win the championship. Uh, <laughs> did did my team... Scoop call a tech oh, on you? Hold on. Don't interrupt this real quick. This is very important. <laughs> my team won. My team had won the championship the week before that. <clears throat> and my team won the championship this past summer when I was coach. 3-0. and I've got three medals. Some people call me the Michael Phelps of Mike Whitson camp. Other people, I mean, insert, uh-huh. legend, insert legendary career here. That's all I'm saying. And Tamar Bates was trying to impede my greatness. And so we always kind of, we always had beef. It never recovered from that. But I thought that he was not giving him calls because he didn't like me that much in the first place. So it wasn't like I started the whole thing. Okay. Wow. And this is what I'm going to say. If that's the biggest beef that, a manager has with a player, then the relationship is normally pretty good. Fair. Um, now, who are you going? I think I I think the correct answer is Justin Smith. Um, I don't think Justin was a very nice person to like, people that he didn't think he needed to be nice to. Possibly, me and Je- so. Justin was very, I remember him specifically being very particular about his water bottle. Um, no, no, I, which many players have. And another thing about Justin is he didn't want us to bring him his water bottle. If he wanted his water, he'd get it himself, which there's something admirable about that, maybe. Um, Whatever. But there was one time that somebody had put ice in his bottle and he didn't want it. And I just saw him go over to it and look at it had ice in it and he just kind of sat it back down like because we have like there's gatorade cups and like a water jug so you can just get water if you want if you don't want if it's if it's crazy or anything and so i saw it i took his bottle went to the locker room dumped it out put just water in it brought it back and then i saw him go back to it and kind of do a double take like where'd the ice go and i just kind of walked by him and i was like it's amazing isn't it and (laughs) that was that was it. That's some grade A managing right there. That's some grade A ass kissing managing. That's really good. Now the now me and Justin, we saw each other at upstairs this past year. Sometime I can't I can't tell you when it was, but he was in town. I think it was for a wedding, maybe. And we talked for a half hour about the good old Coach Miller days, like we were long lost brothers. So okay. that that made me feel about Justin. Fair. Um, so, but do you yeah, think I know what I know what you're talking about with Justin for sure. I get it. Who do you who do you think of all the players? Because you guys are the unsung heroes of the program. And besides your shout out on senior night, um, you often go unappreciated by the fan base in general. But which player who's come through could you just tell really had gratitude for everything you guys did? I'm sure there are many, but one that jumps out to you. Uh, Nathan Childress, one of the walk-ons. He was the first guy, my first day of practice, to ask me what my name was. And I will never forget that, ever. That's a little thing. But he said, I'm Nate, what's your name? 
which is also funny because no one has called that guy Nate in like 12 years. <laughs> <That's true. laughs> so, but yeah, I love, I love that guy. Um, Trace, oh, Trace has always loved the managers. Um, and, and ever, I don't want to, I don't want to name a couple of names because it'll sound like everybody else didn't, but well, for the most part, all players were pretty appreciative of, of what we were doing. Yeah. Let's I guess... One guy. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. So, Demisey Anderson had the cleanest locker of anybody I'd ever seen. Demisey Anderson, it, his locker looked like he was ready to move out any day. It was very, <laughs> it was very fun. Well, kind well, of prophetic. <laughs> that's great. Demisey just ready to go at a moment's notice. Demisey. Um, but talking about Trace. <laughs> You know, your peer, the guy you refused to get a picture with since you guys were the same age. You you did get to see uh, his dream come true this summer along with Jalen. Um, but obviously, you, you and Trace went through it together. Can you just talk about what that moment was like for you and, and what it meant to you to see him get his name called? Um, so I was kind of out of the – so we, we had a manager watch party uh, – for the draft, we all watched Jalen get drafted. We didn't stay the whole time, but I'm watching it intently at home, and I'm watching it go and go and go. And I'm and I'm I'm not on the phone with his agent. I don't know what's going on. So I'm I'm hoping he doesn't go undrafted this whole time. And I'm kind of blown away by how far he's slipping. I'm like, this is crazy. And. But the way I understand it, and I think his agent did a phenomenal job, um, I think he could have gone a lot sooner if he would have wanted to take a two-way kind of NBA and G League. Right. And maybe maybe he could still be in a similar situation. I have, I have no idea what's been guaranteed to him or anything. But when you walk into practice and two guys in your, in your locker room are Steph Curry and Chris Paul, that's kind of – I don't know – Trace and Jalen both, I don't know how many places they could have gone that would have been better for them specifically. No, I, I totally agree. And so I might, I'm going to go on a little Trace tangent here. I wish I kept a list of all the people that didn't understand why Trace was going to be successful in the NBA. And he's not, he has not played a real NBA second yet, so I'm not going to build up a big thing like he's going to be a hall of famer but it was like okay he can't he can't shoot it that's what i that's what i would always hear i said well it's not really his role to shoot it right now he doesn't have we don't need him to be a good shooter it, it would it'd be sexy if he was a good shooter also but he's very good at what he does secondly the nba is played so much differently nobody no gm is looking at the six nine power forward because he's a power forward he's not a center like he had to play here he had to that's what we so we needed and that's where he could have been the most effective but he's gonna be a power forward in the nba basically he might have the c next to his name but he's gonna play power forward and he's gonna set pick and rolls he's gonna sit in the dunker spot and he's gonna make good passes three things that he's very very good at no gm was looking at this guy saying we're gonna give him 12 back to basket post touches a game right Right, Trace, Trace, he might never get one again his entire life. He's <laughs> gonna do just fine, and he's a great, he's a great defender. He guarded big guys. 
he didn't have to guard big guys. We needed him to guard big guys. He could have guarded a lot of small forwards and power forwards in the Big Ten. He'll have to guard a lot of power forwards in the NBA. Um, the first time, the first real, so we met, we didn't meet, but I saw him at the facility when I was getting my knee checked out. The second kind of time our paths crossed was our senior year of high school. Both of us had won the regional. So in Indiana, high school basketball, for people that don't know, because it's different everywhere, you have the sectional, which is kind of your local teams, the regional, a little wider, semi-state, and then the state finals. Sectional is normally like three games. When I played, regional was two games. Semi-state was one game. State was one. And they share venues when you get to semi-state. Mm -hmm. So the 1A game, which is the smallest, which was up, played at the same location as the 4A game, which was Center Grove and Ben Davis. Nice. And it was played at Washington High School, played at Washington High School where the Zellers are from. Now, the 1A game was Bloomfield, us, and Bar Reeve High School. Who very Hoosier reminiscent towns, little towns, not much is going on other than basketball. Okay. So both entire towns were there. Because <laughs> it's in the it's the, the hatchet house, it's, right? Yes, it's at the hatchet house, which is one of the biggest venues. So it, it seats about eight thousand and it was standing room only. It was it was packed. People have told me that are from there, I've I've never seen it that packed. For where the Zellers played. It was right. a big it was a big game. And so I always tell Trace, I said, and the number gets bigger every time I say it. I said there are about ten thousand people there. <laughs> and 9,000 of them didn't give a shit. Wait, we missed you there. You broke up so there. Say it, it again. Say it again. You broke up. I I said there were about 10,000 people there, and 9,000 didn't give a shit that you were there. <laughs> <laughs> I also right. always tell that Dewan Jones, who is now in the NFL, yeah. was on. I always tell Trace that Dewan Jones just took his lunch money that game. Um, which he disagrees. His number goes up every time. I don't know how many points he had, but it, he's like, oh, I had 30. Well, I had 35. I had 40. It goes up every time, just like just like my number. All right. Just like my number. Great. So we don't have you for too much longer, and I want to ask you about the transition to Woody because you got to be there for two years of Archie and two years of Woody, two guys that are right. about as opposite as you can get from from many Correct. respects, you know, personality wise, appearance wise, one's tall and hulking and the Absolutely. other's a small guy, very, you know, pretty diminutive, diminutive, um, but also a personality standpoint, very different. Um, and from a basketball standpoint, very different. So you before <laughs> what I what I want to get to is and look, Ward and I got to see a couple Archie practices. And the truth mm -hmm. is. We looked at each other after those practices, and honestly, we were a little, not scared, that's not the word, but a little bit like, man, like, he's really all over these kids. And yeah. and while we knew that guys like Joey and, and several guys responded okay to that, there was never right. a feeling, and Ward, tell me if you think I'm wrong here, but our conversations were... We never got the feeling that the, there was anything inspirational going on there. 
that it never felt like the team was inspired by Archie as a team. And then you go to Woody, who we've been in some practices and seen him get after guys also. Like he doesn't mind getting after a guy, but but right. overall, it is a different feel. It does feel like these guys are entertained by him, inspired by him, felt supported by mm-hmm. him. Yet both guys weren't afraid to go after the biggest guy in the gym and go after him. And when I say biggest guy, I mean the best guy. Um, what did you see when Woody came in as far as how he interacted with players? So first, I was very, very lucky that Woody didn't just clean manager house because he totally could have done that. He totally, totally could have said, hey, guys, you know, we're going to we're going to build our own manager program from scratch, blah, blah, blah. It could have gone anyway. I'm very lucky that I got to be with both staffs. Um, like I said before with Coach Miller, it's a style that you've got to be able to take it and just and players didn't. I think players kind of felt like, why am I taking it from him? With Woody, there's just a respect factor. Everybody, you know, every player knew who Mike Woodson was before he was hired. You know, everybody knew that name. Um, Eddie, you know, he has a, he has a presence, and he's very smooth. He's very not. He's very charming. He's very charming. Um, maybe his first first week of practice, I'm kind of around the scores table. And he just looks at me. He's like, "What's wrong?" I was like, I "Was like nothing." I was like, "I'm I'm all good." And we had never spoken. I was like, "I'm all good." He's like, "Are you sure?" I'm like, I'm "Like, yeah." I'm like, coach, I'm great. He's like, "You need a hug?" <laughs> I was like, "Coach, I'm I'm doing just <laughs> like coach. I'm doing just fine." I was like, "Well, what if I need a hug?" And I'm <laughs> I'm trying not I'm trying not to do a, a Woody impression right now because yeah. it wouldn't do anybody. Um. He's like, what if I need a hug? And I was like, I'll give you a hug, coach. He was like, I think I need a hug. So I, I just went, I, grabbed, I just gave him a hug. And people around who didn't hear what was going on but saw what happened were like, what? Like, what just, what just, <laughs> um, but, and he's very, there's a lot more lighthearted aspect. He has a little bit of, you know, this is my, this is my grandpa. He's he's old. I'm not gonna. He's very. I don't. I'm not calling him old. I'm saying. Sure. There's just a respect factor there, and an old coolness. Very cool. Very respected. And, um, and guys, just he made guys feel like they were pros a little bit. He gave guys some. He empowered them a little bit more. I think. Mm. Um, made them made them feel pros. Made them feel like. Um, and, and he stressed all the time. It's not fake. It's not for the cameras. He stressed, you're here to get an education and you're here to play basketball. All the NIL stuff comes after that's not for the cameras. That's, uh, you know, once every two weeks talk after practice, like, like it's for real. Woody is not, when you see a motivational Mike Woodson speech on the Indiana basketball account, that's not fake. That is 100% for real. It's every day. Every day he pumps the guys up, tears them down a little bit if he has to, but empowerment 
and mutual respect, I think, is the thing that has made it so much I'm not going to say so much better for the players, but relationships are better, I think, because of that. That's that's great to hear. That's great to hear. Now, uh, before we let you go, we didn't ever get to your responses to why you decided to put yourself through the meat grinder that is being a manager for IU basketball. But I intimated maybe it would be that that you wanted to to be a coach, whether it's that or whatever else. What what is the what is the plan for Gray post Bloomington? Or do you just want to stay there forever like you should? Well, I think I think coaching's in my blood. I love my town and my school so so much. I love Bloomfield and I love Bloomfield High School. And my my brother's involved. I love being able to help my brother and I'll help this program as much as I can. I love IU. I love all those coaches there. This is what I'm this is the only bad part about our staff is what I'm going to say is they're all future stars. Mm-hmm. Like Kenya Hunter is going to be a big time college basketball coach. Yasir Roseman is going to be a big time college basketball coach. Brian Walsh, same thing. Jordan Holes. I hope he's the next coach at IU. Mm-hmm. You know, I I love it. All of those guys, superstars. Mike Stump was a manager at Kentucky worked for the mad ants you know um just got and i i know i'm gonna sound like an idiot for leaving people out but like fellow manager adam howard adam okay adam howard from from when i got hired he was in his second year when i got hired there's something there was just something about him that you know he knows how to he knows how to play the game but it is not phony Mm -hmm. like he's that guy has sent me texts, you know, about, you know, family members, just any Adam Howard is going to be a, a superstar. I don't want to put too lofty expectations on him. He's going to do whatever he wants. Like when he graduated, I wanted him to leave because I was <laughs> like, I, like, like, you're going to be so big. Like, don't like, why are you limiting yourself by staying? That's kind of how I saw it in my eyes. Mm-hmm. But thank that guy that guy is gold bennett munns who is i i don't want to say i don't know what's official but i'm hoping he stays with the team in some capacity bennett munns just won he was either manager of the year or was on the he was an all-american manager and that's no bs that guy he was hired as a junior because because guys try multiple years sometimes i don't know Mm. when bennett tried or what his what his process was. I'm sure I do, but I, I can't think of it right now, but yeah, Bennett Munns is a manager superstar and just works so hard, so hard. So many of those guys do Nick Verdon, who was hired with me as, and I, I, I I'm upset every time I say a name because that means I'm not saying another name, you know, but Nick Verdon was hired with me was a manager at Murray state his freshman year with Ja when he was blowing up. Uh, so that's, that's a cool, path to be on mm-hmm. but now he is I, I don't i can't think of what his title is exactly but he's is he's a huge part of the program in the office every day and it's so it's so fun to see guys that i started with growing up like i mean i feel like when i got there brian walsh was his title was director of basketball operations when i got there but i mean yeah like i, I feel like i 
it's weird to say I see guys grow up, but I've seen Brian Walsh grow, and I love that so much. When I met Brian Walsh, he didn't have any kids. He has two now. You know? <laughs> yeah. No. I love him. Well, love him so much. Gray, funky Cole Medina, you uh you are part of that dream team. We have had the pleasure of getting to know you over the last four years and getting to spend a little time with you. You are always on it. You always have the best attitude. You've always got a smile. Nothing ever seems to fluster you. Um, you just were a calm a presence and a fun presence. We didn't get into your love of music. You yeah. are an accomplished guitar player and an incredible singer. And you are going to learn our theme song and do an acapella or not an acapella, a acoustic version of it. You owe us that. Um, but it Absolutely. has been, there's so much joy we get from, from being, you know, on the periphery of the IU basketball program. But one of the biggest joys has been to get to know so many of the managers that give their life to Indiana for simply the love of Indiana and the love of basketball without thinking that it's going to lead to an NBA draft pick or all the glory of being a player at Indiana. And you're one of those dudes, man. I mean it. You are in the Hall of Fame of IU basketball managers, and you're going to take your place along the long line of IU basketball managers that have done incredible things. And if you're dedicated to Bloomfield down there, and that's going to be your, your goal, I have no doubt that your brother's going to benefit, that school's going to benefit, the whole community is going to benefit. And we look forward to rooting you on and watching it happen. Well, that, that means a lot to me. Thank you, guys. Thank you guys so much. All right, we'll do this I'm, again. I'm, absolutely. Absolutely. I'm excited. That was a guest. That was a guest. Funky, Funky Cole, Cole Medina. Oh, we can, both you, doing it. Yeah, I wanted you to. I wanted you to. I wanted us to finish together. Uh, <laughs> God, God damn it! Uh, I love Grayson. Uh, just like I said in, in the end. I mean, the guy just always has the best attitude. He always just so cool and calm and fun and easygoing. Next time we have him on, though, we got to have him sing for sure. Yeah, if you. You know, probably in the next two hours while I'm editing this, he won't send us the theme song, but it sure would be nice to to give everybody a break from my performance on that for a while. And yeah, and nobody's a bigger cheerleader for that man as a performer than Joey Bronk, who we know loves his music. So that's how we first out, found out that Grayson had these uh, hidden talents. But lucky, lucky Bloomfield, like just to hear him the way he talks about that that school and that community the way he does about IU um that's special that's special to, to have somebody come back home and start contributing the Woody hug story is an all-timer I mean it's just an all-timer I in my head Woody really needed a hug in that moment like that's how I'm choosing to interpret that story he just needed a hug and he wasn't going to ask Kenya or, or Kenyan or Yah he just needed it from a guy who like, you know, he didn't have that close of a relationship with new loved Indiana and, and looked like a guy who could give him a good hug. And Grayson is that guy. Grayson has that presence. He really does of just things can be. Yeah. You do have something blue growing out of your head. Is that your television? Is that, yep. is your TV yep. screensaver yep. on? Mm -hmm. Um, <laughs> it kind of looks like a beret that's yeah. fallen to the back of your head. Um, but yeah, he's just such a, a warm figure in, you know, a very high 
intensity environment. Um, it makes sense. You know, I think if he had to go through the whole rigmarole of interviewing with Woody again, Woody absolutely would have brought him back because to his point, you know, there's that that warmth and that joy that's going on in the program these days. Yeah, you're going to get your your ass chewed out and, and you're going to have to get after it. But in between those moments, to just have a, a smile on your face, it really it makes all the tough stuff a lot easier to navigate. You're going to have a tough choice here. Follow us on Twitter at Hoosier Hysterics for the hysterics. No E. No I. But the sometimes way. Which one did you go with? I don't know. I'm not. I don't know. You know which one I went with. I mean, of course, you you had to. Yeah, you had to. By the way, we didn't talk about it coming out of the Brian Stack interview. But give me your best Scottish accent, like from the heart of Dublin, is one of the great, great fuck ups of all time. First of all, um, it it really we foreshadowed that that's what was coming. <laughs> we talked at length about how important it was to just own your mistakes in comedy, and then I'd, it, I we invited it in, and it just happened. It beautifully happened. Really, just such a moronic thing to say. Somebody who's like of Scottish heritage, you know. I mean, Jesus Christ, like what is wrong with me? Uh, but and I I'm, think if you go back and listen to it, you'll see that. You didn't, it didn't even register with you right away. Nope. Nope. <laughs> I knew with the D, I knew with the D what I had done. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right away. Right away. But with Dublin, no. I sailed right past it. Right past it. I mean, I'm such an idiot that for a second, I was like, have I been wrong all these years about where Dublin is? Nope. <laughs> nope. Nope. All right, man. Well, let's do it again next week. All right. From the halls of assembly, you'll hear us scream and shout. Our love of Indiana is manic and devout. Everything I do, we discuss in unique manner. We won't be satisfied until we hang another banner. Us two goofy guys go by names of Warden Eric. And as you probably know, 